Hey, super fans, you can join Terry, <laughs> Terry Farrell, the Trexperts in outer space, as we make the trek to the greatest Star Trek locations of all time, along of all with time. A, all time, everywhere all time. in the known universe, along with a galactic gaggle of Trek and sci-fi celebrities. Galactic. How much constitutes a gaggle? Well, I don't at, know. At, at least two or three. I have never right. bothered to calculate it. <laughs> Well, pre-production has already begun, but you can get some great backer awards and help us get production going this summer by joining us at MakeTheTrek.com today. That's MakeTheTrek.com. And check out everything you can do to support the Trexperts and Terry Farrell as we boldly go to the greatest Trek locations of all time. We may even tell you what God needs with the starship. The Trexperts are back on the road again as We're our back. glorious... We're, We're back, back, baby. We're back. The Inglorious Baby Live Tour continues back. in 2024, and we're visiting some great cities near you, so don't miss a chance to get exclusive Trexperts merchandise, autograph posters, and see us moderate conversations with the biggest stars in the Trek universe coming to a galaxy or at least a city near you this year, including Richmond, Virginia, Anaheim, California for WonderCon, Oklahoma City, May 24th through 26th, San Diego, California, for Comic-Con with Mark and Ashley, July 24th to 28th. But if Mark and Ashley aren't your cup of tea, well, where are they going to find you, Darren? Well, I'm going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina, July 25th through 28th. Me only. Wow. It's the Trexpert tour. You get Darren all to yourself. Yeah, and right. then we'll all be reuniting, and it feels so good, in San Jose, California, August do you know the way? the 18th. I do I know the way. way to San Jose. And maybe we'll go up north to look for the nuclear vessels while we're there. Well, and we're bringing it on all home in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th to the 8th. So if you want to know what guests will be joining us and how to get tickets, go to galaxycon.com, comic-con.org, or trexpressplus.com. You'll be glad you did. We'll see you around the galaxy. Join us. Next year. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the inglorious... Trexperts. And today, not only are we joined by special guests from his observatory, Robert Meyer Burnett, but we have a very special guest. You could say he was even a Trek alien. But uh, perhaps more importantly, he was Timmy the Geek in X-Files. But we'll, Ooh, we'll get that. <laughs> um, it's the great John Billingsley is here. Welcome. Wow, I lavished praise so early in the morning. I, I, uh, I laugh. I know, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. He also is on our number one greatest TV character actors list. But we're not doing that today. We're doing Star Trek Aliens. Wow. Um, Who do you have to sleep with to get on that list? That's what I want to know. Damn. Holy cow. Well, we're doing great character actors. Let's see. I mean, unfortunately, so many of them have passed away. I'm J.T. Walsh. Steven, well, Steven Toplowski's still alive. Um, yeah, um, so many great character actors. Stephen Root, I think, is the one that. Oh, have, yeah. I mean, I, Stephen, what a career he's what had. What a career he's had. I know. It's inevitable. It's sort of like, you know, is there any chance like, oh, no, they offered that to Stephen Root. Could I possibly read for it? No, they got that Stephen Root. <laughs> it's like, I think the guy cloned himself. That's the thing that's unfair. Is clearly Stephen Root has got clones of Stephen Root running around taking all the work. That well, we yeah, Stephen Root did Star Trek too. But it's he's funny, right, the one thing everything. that he wasn't good in was Star Trek. 
Oh, really? I, 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 it's amazing <laughs> because every show I'm ever in, I usually arrive about a week after Stephen Root has left and everybody's going, oh my God, don't you love Stephen Root? Like, yeah, I, I love, yeah I love. but is Stephen Root on movie screens across the country right now? Am I? Mr. Billingsley is. Oh, yes. And, well, and, and now, I, now I have to say, I went and saw Angel Studios' The Shift. Yes. And I've been obsessed my entire life with making a movie, an adaptation of the Book of Job. Ever since I read Robert Heinlein's uh, Job, A Comedy of Justice, I've wanted to make. I love that. And The Shift is a science fiction take on the book of Job. And yes, it was made by Angel Studios who made The Sound of Freedom. And yes, people might say it's faith-based, but Neil McDonough has a great turn as the devil. Oh, yeah, he's in great. It. He's really great. And I have to say, if you're a fan of these kinds of things, and I am, uh, The Shift is not a bad film. I really enjoyed it and saw it in the theater. It's not bad. And it, it is, uh, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, the gag is, is that somebody, uh, that Job's uh, punishment in this iteration of the Job story is that he gets transported to a parallel universe and he spends the entire movie trying to get back into his own universe. Mm -hmm. A guy who runs a sort of strange movie theater, you can come in and you can watch versions of yourself in all the alternate universes. Mm -hmm. He's trying to see if he can catch on to the alternate universe where he used to live so he can you know, send himself back. Very dark, very dystopian. Um, definitely has a an uplifting faith-based message at the end. Spoiler alert, Job gets everything back again. Um, uh, yeah, it was fun to work on. And I forgot that's out there now. And I also want to point out, because uh, I would be remiss, Jerome Bixby, who wrote the Star Trek episode Mirror Mirror, uh, yeah. wrote a movie, a movie called The Man from Earth. That is a great science fiction film that you were also in. So there's another Star Trek connection there for you. And the you wonderful, uh, the wonderful, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good life. The right. great, yes, great in the Twilight class. Zone. Yeah, best Twilight Zone. I mean, you got it. You've got Ensign Hawk from First Contact and you in one movie. How about that? Uh, I tell you, they should put that on the blurb on the ads, Rob. <laughs> I'm sure that'll, you know, and he's worked with Denzel Washington. Come on. Yeah, no, I'm glad you're highlighting the good stuff in my oeuvre, because sometimes I <laughs> let's talk about martial law. Let's talk about the time you did the toilet brush commercial. Like, let's talk about out. the time you did the toilet brush commercial. I know, I never did a toilet brush commercial. Oh, I, well, damn it. I, but I remember early on in my career when I was sort of like, you know, you do a lot of commercials to make a buck. And I came running home to my missus, this is maybe 25 years ago, saying, Bonnie, I think I've got a really good shot of this diarrhea commercial. Nice. <laughs> and I, 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 even at the time, I thought, is this what I went to drama school to do? I was anti-diarrhea, just like, uh, pro-diarrhea. <laughs> we took a very strong stance against diarrhea. Yeah, these I days, if you were pro-diarrhea, you'd be canceled, and you know yeah, what that yeah, happened. Yeah. I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Uh, well, Rob, I'm glad well. 26 years ago when I was doing Sci-Fi Universe magazine for Larry Flint, we put Neil McDonough as a star of tomorrow. I'm glad to see our, our kids made good after all these years. Now, he's, yeah, 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 he's yeah. had a great career. He's done a lot of great work in the last— For a guy uh, who doesn't want to kiss anybody on screen, he's had a really right? good <laughs> Isn't yeah. that bizarre? I know. It's I know. I, I have frequently, and I don't know Neil, I've just met him. Nice, nice guy, great guy. But I said to him on the set, it's like, when you get the kissing offers, would you send them to me? Don't send them to Stephen Root. Oh, my God. Can I tell you well, a fun kissing story, or do we have to jump into it? No, please. We, we, we always want to hear yeah, about okay. the. So I was shooting the kiss a pilot years ago for some, like, you know, it was kind of a dumbass show uh, about a uh, kids who were private eyes. 
And I was the villain, mustache twirling villain. And in one scene, I was making out with an absolutely gorgeous babe, like so far above me in weight class as to, you know, it's ludicrous. That was the joke. It's like, he's making out with her. I was. That's why you become an actor. I know. I was bending her over a desk. And for various reasons, the desk, the legs were shaky. So there was a grip who had to sit under the desk and hold the desk up the whole time I'm making out with this gorgeous woman. And it was like, fuck up after fuck up after fuck up, take after take after take. The woman was not having a good time. I was rather enjoying myself. And the grip finally, at one point, just leans up and he says, I hate fucking actors. (laughs) um, I thought, you know, you didn't have to be gripped. You could be doing what I do, but you chose <laughs> Word order feels really important in that sentence. I don't know. I just uh, want to say Stephen Root could not have done it as well as you. I uh, I just, you know, there's those rare moments in the career. Usually I'm molesting children. I'm a criminal psychopath. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm doing something awful. The actual no. moments when you're making out with a gorgeous girl, it was like I came home that night. and said, you know, it was a good day at work, Bonnie. Good to she didn't. I didn't really want to tell her the details, but it was. Yeah. Like, Wait, what did you do at work today? <laughs> uh, nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Neil McDonough would that would be like you know invalidate his marriage. I I I I, I thought you know. <laughs> I don't think it invalidated. You go running into the night. So yeah. it, it, it's it's wild that uh, here you played all these awful loathsome characters, and of course you're doing something wonderful. And it is the time of peace, love, and understanding, as Elvis Costello once said. And uh, we thought during these holiday specials, uh, while we're talking about all this frivolous nonsense that is uh, our, our Star Trek ho- holiday countdown, uh, we, we, we shine a light on something actually with the spirit of the holidays, which is John Billingsley is part of the board and of the Hollywood Food Coalition. He's been doing this now for many years. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot about food on this broadcast <laughs> and uh unfortunately because we're lucky enough to be able to go to good restaurants and travel the world go to all these great state places that we talk about all the time on the show and uh you know as we go to the convention thing but there are a lot of people who who can't and and are looking for where their next meal is going to come from and john and the hollywood food coalition is very involved in making sure that people you know are fed that they have enough to eat and of course uh this is something that needs your help to, to sustain a very expensive enterprise, for lack of a better word. John, tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing and the, and the fundraising you're doing right now. Well, first, I'll start with the event, because the event we throw every year to help raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition is, I think, really appealing to Star Trek fans. It's Trek Talks, and it is an eight-hour digital telethon full of panels, interviews, symposia, what have you, with a world of tra- uh, track guests from actors, directors, showrunners, designers, scientists, you name it. January 13, 10 in the morning Pacific time to 6 in the evening Pacific time. And I'm Jerry Lewis, basically. So I kind of... Uh, oh, that sounds exciting. Visitors coming up now. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we last year raised about 110000 for the Hollywood Food Coalition. Uh, the year before that, we raised about eighty. I, I would be remiss to not thank particularly Rod Roddenberry for his generous support every year. But it's also been great fun because, you know, thousands and thousands of Star Trek fans who don't sometimes have the opportunity to go to a convention get to come to this digital convention and they do not have to wear pants. They can sit in their pajamas all day. You don't have to pay to get in the door. You can drink. You can continue to drink the same way you do at a convention. If you want your pals around, bring them to your house. Do something on social. It's a convention experience at home 
You'll have a lot of fun. Some of our guests this year, Frakes, Brent Spiner, Gates, a Picard panel, Women of STEM, Michelle Hurd, Nana Visitor. We're hoping we can get some of the SNW people. We've got a crossover episode with Frakes and Tawny Newsom and the writers of the crossover episode talking about that. We've got a special uh, look back at the Tuvix episode from Voyager. All right. The, uh, cast, and we hope Ken Biller, the writer. It's all sorts of stuff. I'm only scratching the surface. It's a great amount of fun, and it is to raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition, which is an incredible organization. And uh, I could go on and on about it, but in it, in a nutshell, we serve a hot meal every night to all comers. We rescue about 3 million pounds of food a year, and we share it with about 150 other community groups. And we try and find ways to address systemic problems of hunger and need by bringing groups, not-for-profits, and individuals together to figure out things that we can only do collectively. We need more refrigeration. Collective problem. We need more storage. Collective problem. We need more transportation. Collective problem. A lot of what we're really interested in is the coalition building part of the work. And candidly, that's why I kind of reached into the Star Trek community to find ways to say coalition building is what we're supposed to be about, Federation yeah. of Changemakers. So to me, I'm looking to figure out ways to leverage our not-for-profits message back into the Star Trek community, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, and with that money, you're feeding hundreds of, uh, hundreds of people every day and of yeah, course, five, or one meal at Peter bucks. Luger's. Five bucks is what it takes for us to yeah. serve. And this is really important because we really believe in the dignity of choice and the quality of the food we serve. We've never missed a night in 38 years. When somebody comes to us, we say, hello, how are you? How was your day? We'd like to offer you either a vegetarian, a vegan, a carnivorian option. Would you like a starch with that? Potato, rice, pasta, green salad, fruit salad, dessert, what kind of beverage? We want people to feel like for at least one time, they are not only respected and treated compassionately, but they get to choose something for themselves. And because when people come to you on a regular basis, because they've gotten to trust you, it allows us to introduce them to a raft of other social service providers. Hey, would you like to meet Al, who runs the Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Center? Tom might be able to help you with those parking tickets or those, you know, vagrancy tickets or whatever, you know, bullshit has kind of screwed up your life of late. Yada, 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 yada. It's that kind of mesh of collectivity. And eventually we're looking to build our own home on a larger campus where there'd kind of be like a one-stop shopping center for people in need where all those groups would be represented. So you're actually, uh, in your own life and what you're doing, bringing the Star Trek ethos back to Earth and yeah. affecting real change. That's that's a gag. And I think that's sort of, it's always been a passion of mine. I've been involved in, you know, I joke around a lot, but I've been involved in social service work my whole life in different in different ways. And uh, it, it is it is something that means a lot to me. And it meant a lot to me to get Star Trek. I hadn't really thought about it at the time, but over the arc of the last 25 years, you know, what's interesting about this fan base is, and what's interesting about Roddenberry's vision is that it is one of the few places in popular culture where you can actually say the nature of the of the art being created is fundamentally rooted in a kind of a progressive politics that is serviced in action. Right. It's not true mm -hmm. of CSI. It's not true of other shows. People who follow Star Trek generally are interested in figuring out how to make the world a better place. And and I think one of the challenges for all of us in this community you guys are doing it, you know, it's the podcasters and the storytellers and the actors and the fans is how do we come together and do that in a more um, integrated fashion? Mm. 
Right. And, you know, I I don't want to cross the streams, John, but you're also very active in raising money for uh, PanCam, which we'll talk more about next year uh, with the Purple Stride. Uh, People have heard the promos and we're going to plan some some stuff about that. Uh, Obviously, this year, uh, as if we need any reminder about uh, how awful pancreatic cancer could be, we lost the great Manny Cotto. Recently, Camden Toy. And Camden, yeah. yeah, even more recently. Yeah, my mom you know. died of pancreatic cancer many years ago, and from diagnosis to death, it was two months. Jonathan mm-hmm. Frank's brother, similarly. And, you know, we've made great strides in large part because of this organization, um, increasing the survivor rate. Uh, Kitty Swink is a 20-year survivor now. It's one of those weird diseases where if you don't catch it early, you know, and you don't necessarily know that the symptoms you're having could possibly be related to pancreatic cancer, with greater knowledge and greater understanding comes the kind of light bulb, oh, maybe I better go to the doctor now. And that helps. Yeah. yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned Camden because that that was so recent yeah. and and so shocking. I had no you know idea that yeah. he was sick. No, I didn't either. I didn't, I didn't either. I don't know Camden well, but you know we all kind of know each other a little bit in this world. And uh, yeah, no, he's a lovely man, and I was you know he was so gregarious and charming and just a really delightful guy. And um, uh, you know, it's just uh, and obviously you know we did a whole show on Manny. And uh, it just, great. again, such a shock when, um, yeah. uh, like you said, it, it happened so quickly. And uh, obviously you, 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 were, you worked with, with Manny and he was a passionate uh, Star Trek fan. And you see that in the fourth season of your, of your yeah, show. He was. I, I, if only he had, he had parachuted in in the second season, we might have lasted seven <laughs> seasons. But uh, <laughs> Although that had more to do with UPN, you know, the politics of the network itself were really at issue. But he well, was. He was Great. He fan. was too busy doing his own show, you know. I mean, uh, thank God uh, Showtime canceled uh, Odyssey, uh, Odyssey Five, and or he wouldn't end uh, up in uh, yeah. your neck of the woods. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, there's so much, so so much randomness in the world. I'd like yeah. to give a shout out to Richard Hatch as well. He also yeah. died of pancreatic uh, cancer. Um, he played Apollo in Battlestar Galactica and Tom Zarek and Ron Moore's uh, retelling of it. And I had gone to a convention with him in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he was complaining about he thought he had stomach issues exactly and he didn't even know he was sick stomach in the back it's weird it can be like a number of different things and you just don't it doesn't occur to you and he was i mean he was a trooper because that was a by the way a wonderful uh fan run convention in fort collins colorado where they brought us gg edgely me and um richard hatch up and you know he was in pain but he was out you know with the fans and signing autographs and powering through it and a few months later he was gone yeah, I mean, there's so much, you know, and that's the thing. And I won't, I, I won't belabor this. I know you got. We, we want to have a, hot, a festive, a festive air about the show. <laughs> um, but there's so much need in the world, and unfortunately, we're we're kind of going through a bit of a dark time when I think our our governance is not uh, meeting our our humanity um, for various reasons. Some of them, some of it having to do with certain structures, you know, that are just hard to fix. It does become incumbent upon us as citizens to say, how do I brighten the corner where I am? I'm not a particularly religious person, but that is a line from the Bible that I've always loved. Or brighten the corner where you are. And to me, the idea of figuring out what your volunteeristic bliss is, what it is that's going to mm. make you feel happy and engaged, it's right there in your community. You just have to kind of dig around a little bit. It could be a, right. an environmentally oriented group. It could be teaching a kid to read. It could be volunteering with an organization like mine, it could be kind of figuring out something on your own, organizing a toy drive, a food drive, a book drive, a clothing drive, so many ways to give back, which is what this holiday is all about, but which also I think, again, to kind of go back into the religious realm, 
what the Hebraic saying is, virtue is its own reward. It makes you happy to be generous. It makes you happy to be kind. And I think that's something that, you know, for me, is very animating. Definitely yeah. much so. No, well, well, well put. In, in, in Judaism, there's the idea of tukun, tukun alam, which is repair the world, which is, it's so important this time of year, reflect on all the, um, all the things that people can be doing to make the world a better place because so many people are sort of making it worse. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's a real testament to you guys using your fame and success from Star Trek uh, to, you know, be making the change that you want to see in the world. And obviously this predates it. Um, it could have been Suits, though, John, right? I mean, who knew? I mean, you know, you did an episode of Suits. That thing is like, Two. what is with Suits, too, right? I know, what is I know. it with this thing? I know. Well, that's why we ended up having to go on strike, because the thing is, like, more people saw Suits on Netflix and saw it when it was on uh, cable, and yet yeah. I got, like, 59 cents. So yeah. that's the streaming model's problem. Uh, no ads, which, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, suits and uh, Gabriel mocked actually the guy you know Harvey. I was mm -hmm. on a show with him called uh, The Others in 1999, a very short-lived sci-fi show that Spielberg produced about Ghostbusters, and right. they gave us the 10 o'clock Saturday slot <laughs> back when there was television on uh, network television Saturdays, the very worst possible slot at the time in network television. Steven Spielberg was so pissed off he basically told us the net. The network to go fuck itself. So it was like we were waving to Steven Spielberg as he was driving away from our show. Bye, Steven. Thanks for putting <laughs> <laughs> out. Uh, I knew Gabriel very well. It was great to work with him again on Suits. And and uh, for a, a little bit of trivia, of course, we all know his dad is Steven Mock, who was yeah. the runner-up for Picard. And uh, had Steven, who we love, uh, played Picard. Uh, we would not be talking about Star Trek today. Uh, I think Star Trek uh, would have probably ended a long time ago. You never Wait a know. minute, though. You He's a fantastic know. actor. You never I know. agree. He is a fantastic I mean, actor. But, you know, you've seen Galaxina, right? He, he's not He's not Picard. Mm. You know? <laughs> you I, I love Steven. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I just, you know, it was a good choice. Some people well, like fit the, in the, Patty, the Patty Duke show. You know, the Patty Duke show. Mm, of course. That was supposed to be the Ingrid Bergman show. So, I mean, it would have been, you know, where Ingrid does it, but, but they couldn't get Ingrid Bergman. She said, I don't really want to do network television. I think I'm too old to play a, you know, rambunctious teen. So they got Patty Duke. So you I know, would have watched that show. Oh, my great. God. Yeah, I, totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's you not imagine, true. Because you know today. I'm, you know, I made that up, right? You know, that's true, not. We that want it to be true. We want it to be true. It's a spirit of Christmas. going. Yeah, I know. That's how convincing I, you are. I realized that uh, for minute, act. actually, you were really thinking that it's Paris. <laughs> we'll always have Paris. Well, because you <laughs> look at when that <laughs> fell in the '60s, and you know, I mean, look, her last thing was "Gold in My Ear" for uh, for syndication. But you know, by the '60s already, she's kind of, you know, in the tail end of her. Career. So, like, it's not crazy to think that she would have been offered that. It would have been crazy <laughs> if she had done it. <laughs> uh, I'd probably be a little long in the tooth to play a 16-year-old girl in Bensonhurst. But all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's acting, sir. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was going to be Audrey Hepburn. So, okay. okay. Well, look, we have a list to get too. through, as uh, we do uh, on these holiday specials. Bad. By the way, speaking of holiday specials, since it is the holiday season, real quick, uh, Mr. Billingsley, what is your favorite holiday movie? 
Uh, it's oh, well, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a it's a wonderful life. I just can't. I, I weep like a fucking baby every time. My wife's favorite is the Bishop's Wife with David mm, Niven. Right. Mm. Um. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, those two so lap the feel. I couldn't tell. You, there's no no other movie in my estimation. I, I just they showed it. I was watching. I don't know. I went to a friend's house and they were showing the last thirty seconds of it. It's right. like Pavlovian for me. Yeah. If I come in and I watch even a, a frame of It's a Wonderful Life, it's like, oh, yeah. it just does me in every time. Had a boy, Clarence. Little boy, <laughs> <laughs> I'm you know, going to go everywhere. That big suit. <laughs> yeah. You know, Jimmy Stewart was up for Patty Duke. No, um, so <laughs> I well, they uh, had a very interesting <laughs> roster of people who got who were up for the part of uh, Mary, and they, and many of them turned it down, including who was it? I can't remember somebody. Maybe I can't remember who it was who said, "Never take that part." It's just vanilla. I think it was uh, Hugh O'Brien. Hugh O'Brien would have been great. <laughs> I mean, it was Jimmy Stewart and Hugh O'Brien. Yeah. Now, that would have been like if they cast Stephen Mocked instead of... <laughs> 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 Probably never would have seen that. Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. You know, it's funny, too, because um, The Bishop's... You know, The Bishop's Wife was a movie that was on every three seconds growing up. Yeah. And everyone knew it, right? Now, this is what we talk about. Can't it's find like, it. Because, well, it's not even that you can't find it. It's like people aren't the mercy of what's on TV. They get to watch, curate whatever they want. So they're watching Home Alone for the 80th time. Or, you know, I'm not going to criticize watching Die Hard for the 400th time. But they're not seeing these classic Christmas movies yeah. because they're not watching, they're not having curated on TV. The thing I love about that movie, which is also a reflection of how, how movie making has changed, is... They have very few close-ups in that movie. There are a lot of shots where people just enter the frame, and it's basically a oneer. Yeah. There's, you know, there's David Niven, there's Cary Grant, there's Loretta, Angela Lansbury comes in, the dog comes in. It's like the camera never fucking moves, and it's great. I, I just nowadays we live in if you don't have eighteen edits in a single yeah. you know minute, it's somehow not. Yeah. You know, well, that's uh, how well, you have to do it when your had... editing changed change the way movies are cut, the way uh, it's paced, the way that uh, a generation is willing to consume movies because they're so used to seeing movies that are so quick cut, they can't go back and look at the pace, the deliberate yeah. pacing of yeah. movies, and, and you it, know, from it, before it, 19... It, it kills, I think, you know, like what Preston Sturgis used to do. I mean, the the, the fabulousness of text yeah. and, and yeah. the comedy of wordplay, you know, when it's all about beep, bop, boop, bop, beep, bop, boop, it, that it becomes more about what a director does visually than it does what then it's about what the, the script achieves. But that's uh -huh. how you had to do it when you had a 15 day shooting schedule. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like when television. they were cranking them out. Yeah. I was watching, uh, I went on Ealing Studios kick and I was watching nice. Kind Hearts and Cornets the other oh day. Oh my God. It's and and my God. You, you you know, you just look at that and like you were saying, it, because it was very much theater, you know, you had all these actors that came out of theater. So they were they were used to these long scenes and they can pull it off. Yeah. And there wasn't there even I was just another thing. I watched a clip on YouTube from I, Claudius, and it was a scene when uh, Mark or not Marcus Aurelius, but uh, Augustus Caesar, Brian Blessed mm. is it learns that his daughter has been sleeping with everybody mm -hmm. and it's a wonder and the camera's moving all over the place and it's just marvelous and when you look at it and you realize that's what they were showing you I, there's very few people that know how to stage a sequence like that for the camera and it's kind of a lost art 
Yeah, because they just put up eight cameras and try and get every angle possible rather than knowing how to block a scene. I did remember. Like a Billy another, Wilder or Howard Hawks. Another Christmas movie I like is the one with uh, uh, Fred Murray and Barbara Stanwyck where he takes her back to his family. You know that one? No. Oh, I've stumped the fucking band. I love you it. You stumped the track shorts. You're going to have to look not this the Stansperts. You're going to have to look this up because I can't remember the name, but it's Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck. Well, it sounds like you stumped yourself, too. It's not, it's not double indemnity. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's the double indemnity Christmas guest. special. Right. It's, the, it's the name <laughs> that I can't recall, um, but he uh, he's a prosecutor who, through a series of ludicrous uh, turns of uh, 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 twists and turns, ends up having to take a, a miscreant uh, back home to his family in Iowa or wherever the hell right. they fall in love. I mean, this is the double indemnity cast. And this right. is, you know, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck are wonderful in it. I love that it's an alternate universe version of Double Indemnity. Yeah. What What if she hadn't betrayed Walter Neff and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. they would ended up together? Yeah. Or Christmas <laughs> in July, Preston Sturges. I love that. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, of right. course, my my all time favorite is Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I I I tear up every time on that one too. So and of course Darren is talking about the original, not the John Hughes remake. Uh, yeah, for thank those you. listening at home. <laughs> thank no, you very no, much. No, no, for... Well, there was a Marlo Thomas re remake. Wasn't there, there was Wonderful Life. So no 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 remake. Yeah yeah yeah. No remake. <laughs> no, no, That's no like remakes. the Casablanca TV series with David Soul. No 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 no. <laughs> oh, deep cut. You know it's so funny you say <laughs> that, John, because we had um, I think it was Ralph Sineski on the show who directed a bunch of Star Treks, but he also directed an episode of Casablanca, and that's all we wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, somewhere, somewhere, some, like, you know, studio executive at Burning in Hell, that's all I can say. It's like, you remember who played Sam? David Soul was Rick Blaine. Who was Sam? You remember? No, no, I, I recoiled in horror. I don't remember how old I was. But <laughs> it was like... No, I didn't, I didn't, didn't go near Okay, stick around at the end of the show. We'll tell, no, it's Scatman Crothers. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Okay. That is. Okay. So this is our holiday countdown of the 10 best Star Trek alien races. As everyone knows, the holiday specials, we've been doing top 10 countdowns. We've done top seasons. We've done music. We've done um, uh, merchandise, uh, merchandise, pop culture references. But today it's aliens. Okay. And we have an authentic Star Trek alien. Am with I us in the top today. 10? Am I in the top 10? Well, we'll have to listen and find out. We'll have to listen and I find out. Could, I bet could the Nobulans <laughs> be in the top ten? There's only one no, way to no, find no, out. The problem is nobody can even pronounce Denobulant. That's that's really that the heart is a part of the problem is that the reason they can't have more Denobulans is nobody can pronounce my species. Yeah, but how many <laughs> wives does your species? Even get? the people on my show couldn't pronounce my species. <laughs> <laughs> Denobulin. Most people want to say denobulin. It's like we don't take offense anymore. It's like fine. fine denobulin, fine. denobulin. Let's call the whole thing off. Exactly. Just say no to denobulin. Where are we from? Dunno. <laughs> That's how you remember. Okay, well, let's find out if John's species, which shall not be named because I can't pronounce it, makes the list. So uh, for number 10, we're looking at Darren Docterman to reveal number 10 on our list of top 10 best Star Trek aliens. Well, number 10 uh, uh, were introduced in the third season of the original series uh, when we come upon a strange rift in uh, dimensional space. And we see the, uh, the Defiant, the original Constitution class uh, ship, uh, phasing in and out 
in uh, from regular space. And uh, it just happens that this area of space is uh, in an area claimed by the Tholians. Mr. Spock, I'm receiving a visual signal. Grounds for the main viewer. Spock, in command of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Commander, according to the Federation, this area is free space. We claim this territory and are prepared to use force, if necessary, to protect our property. We are not interested in your display of force. The Enterprise is responding to a distress signal from one of our ships and is currently engaged in rescue operations. Do you wish to assist us? I find no evidence of a disabled ship. My instruments indicate that ours are the only two vessels in this area. The other ship is interspatially trapped. It should reappear in one hour and 53 minutes. We request you stand by until then. Very well, Enterprise. In the interest of interstellar amity, we will wait precisely one hour and 53 minutes. But be correct. We do not tolerate deceit. And the Tholians are a Did you know that, John? You ever heard of the Tholians? I I saw all the original episodes years and years ago. That vaguely rings a bell. That vaguely yeah, okay. rings a bell. The Tholians, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Darren, continue. I'm always, yeah, I'm always done. There are this many rifts in space, though. It's like there's more rift than space. It's like, why? Well, oh, yeah. It's well, like, space is really big. But, you know, here's the twist. They came back in your show. The yes, they did. Too? They did. In a two-parter in the fourth season. It's entirely possible that I was in the mess hall or I mean, it wasn't like, they rarely called me up to the bridge, you'll notice. Like McCoy, he's like, what's he doing in the bridge? Yeah. He'd be doing, down, like, putting a Band-Aid on somebody. Aren't there, aren't there sick people? I, yeah. I was never on the bridge. I love that. Yeah. About but I have to say, in that episode where they come to the two-parter, you were particularly fantastic because we got to see your mirror universe counterpart version of yourself where oh. you were really bad. Well, I was joyful. I was a joyful vivisectionist. <laughs> joyful. Right? You were joyful, Magdalene. <laughs> it was easier for me. I like Connor was like, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know how to be bad. And James Conway said, we'll do it like you're a pirate. <laughs> there you go. Poor Connor. Poor Connor hates that. Hates those episodes. <laughs> I just got to be happy. It's like, this is guy, just like regular flocks. This guy loves what he does. He's he hates those episodes because that's when, that's when the cancellation notice came down when you were filming in oh, a mirror darkly. I don't know why. Everybody was like, you know, all sorts of like, oh, it was like, what part of the handwriting on the wall were you not being able to read? It's a miracle we got here, for God's sake. <laughs> I know. We're shocked, shocked. There's gambling going on. I, I know. I mean, it's the like, writing was on the wall for, for, for months. Only eight people watching. Why do you think? Thank God it has been rediscovered by an, another audience uh, on Netflix. Because, you know, I mean, I, uh, the show had highs and lows. But I'm glad that some people are watching it now who have come to appreciate it more than they perhaps did then. Um, it has a very passionate following. And I think we've seen over the years oh. that um, the fans have really um, embraced it and that there's a whole generation that, you know, it's their favorite Star Trek. Yeah, um, I like all Star Trek, you know. I mean, not all Star Trek is, is going to be uh, loved equally by all fans. And this one, I think, coming when it did after so much Star Trek, I think some of it was just Star Trek overkill, you know. There hadn't been a break 
and in many seasons there were two shows running simultaneously certainly rick and branna needed a rest they needed to have, they wanted a year off they wanted to well, they needed more than a year off and i i i, I love <laughs> brannon and uh i i respect rick tremendously but uh Look, television is brutal, and those yeah. twenty-six episode seasons are even more brutal. Yeah. And the idea that you could be doing this for many years, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years straight, yeah. with uh, uh, you know a month off for hiatus during yeah. those sixteen years, yeah. it's not insulting them to say they were on the show too long. No, no one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it was Ben Hecht yeah. couldn't have done it. No, I I, I love them, and I, you know they gave me a gig, and uh, you know I'm I'm. And, Incredibly appreciative and appreciative of what they've done and their legacy for the show. But yes, early on in the first season, it was like episode three, and I'm at the craft service table having a petty four. The petty fours went away shortly after that. <laughs> <laughs> like, where are the petty four? Uh oh. <laughs> but I was having a petty four early on, and Brandon was there. He said, If you have any ideas, you know, just, you know, for the show, just let me know. It was like, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't. I thought, um, well, that's a little scary. <laughs> oh Bob Picardo, he's the idea guy. I, Jesus, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I just say the, the lines idea. and don't bump into the furniture. You know Bob, you know Bob Picardo, right? I mean, he would hide in the rose bushes so that when they walked outside, he'd spring out and say, "How about I sing opera? What about my Flex seven How about that?" And then, you know, it's like I never had the nerves. You can track the success of Star Trek through the craft services. It started out really bad on Next Gen, and, and then as it got more successful, craft services got better and better and better. And then on Enterprise, you see the craft services going oh, down yeah. and down. Oh, and down. yeah, 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 yeah. No, and that's true for any television show. It's like you can always, when you're a guest, you can always tell how successful the show is. It's like, so this bagel is for all of us? Or should I, were we cutting it up into little pieces here? Or, you know... Or it's like, oh my gosh, I'm swimming in locks. Holy shit. <laughs> it must have been nice for you because you'd been a, a, an actor on, you know, doing, um, you know, actor of the week on so many different shows. And on some cases, cast treats you well. In other cases, they don't even learn your name and treat you like shit, right? But on Enterprise, Number one on the call sheet was Scott Bakula, who was a doll. Yep. And then you had the opportunity to sort of be the kind of guy you wanted to be and be inviting and welcoming. Yeah, it was nice. People can it was nice. It was nice. I mean, I do play. Oddly enough, I mean, I was a theater actor and I moved here in 95 and I didn't really begin to work until late 97. So I was working a fair amount in 98, got a show in 99. Then I got I got Enterprise. So I didn't have this, you know, incredibly long list of credits mm. on television. I had a lot of stage credits. Right. Um, and I hadn't played any number. I played some, you know, horrible predators and serial killers, but it wasn't like, you know, I'd had the run that I eventually had of playing creeps. Um, it was still, for where that landed in my career, such a wonderful opportunity to play a nice guy and a smart guy and a funny guy. And it, it was something that in, in weird ways I later on began to realize was actually uh, rare and, and important because network television frequently casts you to type. And my type, for reasons that elude me sometime, is creepy brainiac. So, <laughs> I feel attacked. <laughs> Brainiac? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, yeah, no, serial kill. I had, I had a director call me one day and said, I know that you were uh, molesting children for me last week, but I've got another show that I need a child molester on. Can you come back and do that too? It was like, oh, great. I'm a go-to person for child molestation on television. <laughs> oh, man. What? And show business? 
Yeah, right. You you, uh, you also had to do um, a lot of mask work in that, obviously. What was it? I mean, it, did you find it liberating or just annoying to have to do, you know, be in, you know, uh, prosthetics for the whole run of the show? Neither. I mean, it was annoying insofar as, you know, it tacks two and a half hours on to your shoot day and then you've got 45 yeah. minutes at the end of a day. So on those in those episodes when you're really busy. Uh, which weren't a ton. I mean, you know, I wasn't the go-to guy for running around in my blue hoodie pants the way the others were. So I, I didn't. Yeah, have, you missed out on all that fun I didn't decontamination. Have to work, I didn't have to exactly. I didn't have to work my ass off the way some of the others did. But in those episodes when they use you a lot, it's a seventeen or eighteen-hour day when you factor in the makeup application. Yeah. The eyeballs were the the bitch of it because you know they've got these eyeballs that they put into you and they're the size of saucers and they they can't account for astigmatism. So you're really kind of walking around sort of half. Oh. You can't read, which is the love, my the thing I like to do the most. So for me, the only reason I became an actor was it seemed like the best job you could get because you get to read all day and occasionally work. So the idea that, you know, with this these lenses, I couldn't do that. And and then they took the petty four away, so I couldn't do that. Right. So oh, I, my God, yeah. That's, what am I supposed that's to the do end all day? <laughs> the you writing know? was on the wall when the petty fours go away. Oh, don't I know it. I remember the first yeah. looking for them. It was like, are they under the... <laughs> It's like, what, what happened to the, the little little petty fours we used to have? Oh, we're not going to have those anymore. It's like, oh. and, and speaking of petty fours, a delicious So anyway, dessert, what are we doing for the Hollywood Food Coalition? The Tholians, <laughs> right. The Tholians. Oh, Tholians. We didn't okay. even get to number 10. We got we got totally sidetracked. Uh, continue, Darren. We want to hear more about the Tholians. I blame myself. Well, the I Tholians had, had a, uh, uh, their organization of their race was that they were almost insect-like, so uh, you know they didn't have uh, they didn't have hunger. Uh, you know, I'm just telling you that they did not have hunger. So they didn't worry they, about petty forests. They did not need a Hollywood coalition. I'm just saying we do. That is an artful, artful, <laughs> artful transition. I don't. I Indeed. mean, I am I am truly stunned at <laughs> uh, at how you managed to go from Tholians to the Hollywood Food Coalition. Wow. And now back to Tholians. Um, they already uh, in progress. Already in progress. Now, of course, the the title of the uh, of the episode was the Tholian Web. So you expect there to be a web, and indeed there is, because a couple of these ships uh, appear and they start uh, constructing a lattice of uh, of energy that uh, could be called a web that surrounded the uh, Enterprise and the uh, and the Defiant. And would uh, disturb the space so that we would lose Captain Kirk forever. Oh, geez, and what do the Tholians look like? They they had uh, they were kind of like crystalline in shape. They were angular, and uh, they had uh, sort of uh, uh, heat heat uh, rack it behind them, and uh, and they uh, they were very flat faced. And they can I can I ask if you were like instead of like the ten most yada yada aliens, if it was the <laughs> Ten most like y yummy aliens, or the you know the alien that well, if like it was like on on Tinder, you go yes. Would you, would you date a Tholian? Uh, probably not, but you know who knows? Infinite diversity, and they're off the list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ten vavavumiest aliens. You'd want to date number a ten, Susan Oliver, as the Iranian slave. You know, yeah. you're you're not going to be able to force the Denobulans onto our list, no matter how you change. I'm the not fun. on the list. You, you <laughs> we don't know that. We, we don't know that. Out. But but it would definitely be on if it were the you know top sexy aliens. So sexy, let's just be fair. 
Top 10 sexiest aliens. <laughs> Let's I see if it's Fred, up there. The no yeah, yeah, yeah. Rose Petal Bath. <laughs> well, it, it was a remarkably imaginative depiction of a, a, a alien culture. Um, and it's and what it was the, the only Star time, Trek did very well. And it was the only time that Star Trek uh, won uh, or was uh, did it win or was it just uh, nominated for an Emmy in visual effects? For visual effects, yeah. For that remarkable optical of the... Um, and it's interesting because as we talked about, they, they do come back in Enterprise and Amir Darkly, That's written right. by our good friend uh, and frequent guest Mike Sussman. And... Uh, uh, you uh, there, CGI is used to create the Tholians, but I think one right. actually is interrogated in the bridge, mm. uh, in the brig. Um, but, uh, such a great, interesting concept that's so extraordinarily well executed. Particularly, you look at, uh, you know, in 68, 69 for that season right. of, uh, you know, to be able to pull this off on television on a TV budget, um, you know, the opticals are really extraordinary. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the yeah. things I wanted to say about, when I watched that, even as a little kid, what I loved about the Tholian web, it's a terrific episode of Star Trek, but when you meet the Tholians, they set up backstory through just the dialogue and Spock right. comments on the renowned Tholian punctuality. punctuality yeah. And while we know nothing about the, these aliens, because this is, speaks to the writing in the show, they give you information that makes them, rather than just these nameless, well, they had a face, but antagonists or bad guys they had a culture. How and, renowned and, and, can you be for punctuality? That seems like a... <laughs> well, that was the thing. That was, that, that was exactly the point. Like, and, and it was Spock who recognized it. So if a Vulcan is commenting on their punctuality, these people have to have put showing up on time at a premium. And I remember, <laughs> I remember as a kid thinking, what an interesting... What an interesting thing to comment on. And yeah. it, it, it's, it sets up the idea of the ticking clock that they, they, they better get it, it, Kirk it out of the interface. It kind of feel like people are like waiting around for the Vulcans, like, where the fuck is he? <laughs> Clearly, Rob is not a Tholian. <laughs> We're only 10 minutes late. Wait, this isn't LA. You don't get no. a 10 minute grace period. No. <laughs> I had no idea punctuality was at a premium in uh, renowned, Star Trek. Renowned, renowned punctuality. To be renowned for it would suggest that there are a lot of alien species who aren't showing up on time. Oh, right? yeah. 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 Like well, the Denobulans. Like people came to the Hollywood Food Coalition and you weren't open, right? And they're waiting and they're hungry, but it's, you would they're never all, do that. They're all you would open on time. Oh, and if only this joint was run by the Tholians, we'd be, right. you know, <laughs> right now. Yeah. Well, maybe they should join you at the... Um, at, at, at the Trek Talks. What would a Tholian sound like on that podcast, Darren? I have no idea. You don't know what a Tholian sounds like? No. They should get Gene to come down. This well, is you know, Gene isn't going to come down many places anymore because it's just, uh, it's a little out of the way, if you know what I mean. This is an interesting idea, though, actually, having <laughs> the uh, different species sort of examined in greater detail. Because, uh, you know, this is the third year we've done Trek Talks. And uh, our, our hope is that we can continue to do it every year. So I'm always interested in new ideas. Uh, so um, we'll, we'll keep talking. This is kind of... <laughs> oh, we're going to keep talking because at number nine, Robert Meyer Burnett is going to tell us what our number nine of the top ten best Trek aliens of all time is. Could it be... Denubulin? Well, it's not a Denubulin. And I, I, I will say this. What's very interesting about Star Trek is it was always, especially as the years went by, everyone always said, well, it was always humanoid aliens with prosthetics on their faces. Varying degrees of that. That's me. And, and Denubulins were one of those species. Uh, we, I was, absolutely. This yep. was not. 
And when you're working, even though Star Trek was not the well, original series. Well, I couldn't series. blow up like a pufferfish, motherfucker. So let's no. just be clear about that. <laughs> Can any of you blow up like a pufferfish? I think not. They take that under consideration. If it gets cold enough. Uh, the, the original Star Trek had a, a number of horror elements in it that sometimes isn't really spoken of. This alien was, its introduction was one of the most horrific during the original series. This alien could burn a human being or a, a humanoid to a crisp, leaving only a smoking shadow like behind. And it is the Horda from Janus 6. Ship ready to leave orbit, Captain. Course laid in. Very good, Mrs. Bach. Chief Engineer Vandenberg standing by on Channel 1. Bye. Yes, Chief. Kirk here. Just wanted to tell you the eggs have started to hatch, Captain. First thing the little devils do is start the tunnel. We've already hit huge new proteum deposits. I'm afraid to tell you how much gold and platinum and rare earths we've uncovered. I'm delighted to hear that, Chief. Once Mother Horta tells her kids what to look for, you people are going to be embarrassingly rich. You know, the Horta aren't so bad once you get used to their appearance. Well, that's about it, Kirk. Thanks for everything. Our pleasure, Chief. Kirk out. Curious. What Chief Vandenberg said about the Horta is exactly what the Mother Horta said to me. She found humanoid appearance revolting, but she thought she could get used to it. Oh, she did, did she? Now tell me, did she happen to make any comment about those ears? Not specifically. But I did get the distinct impression she found them the most attractive human characteristic of all. I didn't have the heart to tell her that only I have... She really liked those ears? Captain, the Horda is a remarkably intelligent and sensitive creature with impeccable taste. Because she approved of you. Really, Captain, my modesty. Does not bear close examination, Mr. Spark. I suspect you're becoming more and more human all the time. Captain, I see no reason to stand here and be insulted. And uh, Janice Six. Um, and <laughs> the the little, was that, that the Rocky the thing? That yes, yes, yes. Okay. That is the Rocky that thing. The, Wait, the so frozen... the Rocky thing is on the list and I'm not on the list? <laughs> We don't the know, we don't know if you're on the list or not, but the Rocky thing definitely is. But the, the thing about the Horda, what was so amazing in this episode is you find out she is the last of her species and it is, it's a bait and switch. And what you think about this character, this creature, this, this, this alien is completely changed by the end of the episode. And this, this, this creature that is introduced as being a horrific monster, uh, because of the way it looks. We're judging it by the way it lo looks and its actions. It turns out that she is the mother, the last of her race that is that is presiding over a whole new generation of her species. And once we come to an understanding and an accommodation, not only is the Horda shown to be well a fairly wonderful, uh, a fairly wonderful entity, but then her and her next generation become cohorts and they work with the miners of the planet. <laughs> There is an interpretation of that episode that one could say is somewhat imperialistic. I I, I would look at that episode with a, with a slightly different political standpoint now and say, you know, absolutely. What basically said was like, you know what? Just just work with us. We'll use you to cultivate the resources we need, and you'll love us eventually. Even though we killed a bunch of you now, you'll love us eventually. Which is similar to what we were saying to the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese. So I'm just saying, you know, I, I I don't. I, I love that. 
perspective in the sense that we've always said what's so great about this episode is you see something you think is ugly and horrific and you figure is a monster and it's out to kill us because that's our perception, right? And it turns out it's just a mother protecting her young. This is what was great about the original Star Trek. It gave you a way of reframing the perspective and not giving into necessarily what your expectations are and giving into, you know, stereotypes. But what John is saying is it's basically a, coal, a bunch of coal miners in West Virginia and we're putting their kids to work on our behalf because they're happy to do it because they're going to make some bucks. So oh, interesting, say- you just pulled the string on a beautiful message of tolerance and acceptance <laughs> and blew it all up after 50 years. Thanks a well, lot, John. <laughs> it is one, of the, one of the great and interesting challenges, I think, of culture and perspective as times change is that certain things you look back on and you look back on with great fondness. But we forget that it was still a product of its time. And this was during an era when, in spite of the fact that I think the show kind of examined some of the imperialistic attitudes that kind of underlie, underlied things like the Vietnam War, there was a lot that was still baked into the pie in terms of our belief of mm. exceptionalism and, you know, our right to, you know. But, you know, right I, I think you can, take, right. you can take any story. Yeah. Um, you can take any narrative that you like. And you can apply, you know, whatever uh, paradigm you want to it, and you can reduce it in that way and turn it in that thing and and interpret it from that point of view. Um, But it only requires that that interpretation ignore authorial intent and ignore the meaning that is also present in the text. It doesn't mean that one meaning is inherently more accurate than another meaning. It only means that you know there is something from the text that you need to use as evidence. Um, so I don't necessarily look. I think, like Mark does, it's an incredibly interesting way of of looking at it. I don't really agree with it, but I think it's fascinating, um, and it just kind of does bring up another point about Star Trek, which is that if you look at how our crew interacts with these aliens in these stories, they are constantly trying to tell us something about ourselves. And there is a context that we will continue to bring to it. And it's a testament to how great Star Trek is, that we can bring different contexts to these stories over time, and different people can find different meaning in them. Not every story, you can do that. I mean, you can break it down however you like, but at some point, there isn't the raw material uh, to support well, that's certainly what all the French all. eggheads say. You know, the idea that there is no writer that you know every text is ultimately you know written by the reader because you're always going to bring your own sense of your own cultural understanding, your preconceptions, your background. Um, and I I agree. You know, the those those uh, those thinkers kind of take it to a level of extremity where you begin to go what? But. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to point out that one of the things that, that was interesting about the, the species is we really only saw them once in the original series and up, up until, I believe, uh, uh, Lower Decks. But in the um, novels... Oh, Star- God, here it comes. No, yeah. well, no, hang on. Star Trek novelist... In the novels. Star Trek novelist Diane Duane, who's one of my favorite Star Trek novelists, yep. uh, introduced Ensign Narat. A mm-hmm. horda, a horda ensign that was now had gone through Starfleet Academy and was on the ship and, and was on the Enterprise and the hordas were now serving in Starfleet. Wow. And yes. And now I want to point out that when Seth MacFarlane created the Orville, it wasn't exactly a horda. 
but the Norm McDonald voiced Yafit, who was a basically a very non-humanoid, a sludge-like, basically a, a sentient snot, you know, uh, sort of took the idea of, of a Horda crew member and made it his own in on on the Orville. And what I always loved about the, that idea was Star Trek didn't have the budget and maybe the way to do it effectively to bring a very non-human looking yeah. creature on That's board true. the Enterprise. And it would have been really fascinating if they have could have pulled something like that off. I don't know how you could have made a Horta <laughs> moving down the corridors of the Enterprise anything other than parody. But it would have been interesting to see how a Horta crew member. The, decon, the decontamination scenes, I think, would have been kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I wouldn't want to see like it would look like a ball in her undie pants and the Horta like rubbing shit on them. So I, I just wow. Because <laughs> they are not on the sexy list. I'm sorry. I don't mean to that be like a, culturally dismissive. Yeah, that's a whole new branch of fan fiction there. You got. <laughs> oh yeah, that's just the that's just the fan fiction I'd end up in too. Yeah. <laughs> well, Phlox was a horny guy. You know, you had three wives. And three husbands. Each wife had three husbands. And I tried to raise my eyebrow in a fashion that suggested to the audience that I got it on with the husbands as much as I got of it on. Of course. That, yeah. wasn't, that wasn't in the text, to to, uh, to your point, Ashley. That, it was that, in the subtext. That was something that I, I was trying to sort of superimpose above the author's what is a What is the nine version of a throuple? You know, uh, I tried to work out the possible sexual combinations, and it was mathematically beyond me. I, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nine times eight times seven times six times five times four yeah, is nine I, factorial. So <laughs> give me a minute, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, oh God, I got a lot of wives waiting on this information. If you can give me the answer, <laughs> elated to hear. Okay, that was number nine, the Horta, and uh, that brings us to Ashley Edward Miller and number eight. Speaking Could of women's rights. this be John's big moment? We're about <laughs> to find out. Speaking of sexy aliens, um, you know, this, this alien species was actually first mentioned in the, uh, in the pilot of, uh, of Star Trek The Next Generation Encounter at Farpoint. And they were mentioned in such a way that made them sound ominous and scary and awesome. And in fact, so ominous and scary that uh, when Groppler Zorn threatened that perhaps uh, he would uh, offer the services of his station to the Ferengi. Captain Picard said, I hope they find you as tasty as they did their last associates. Of course, then we meet them a couple of episodes later in the last outpost, and they're basically space idiots. On behalf of all Ferengi, I protest. Why were we not invited to these negotiations? My apologies. We did not anticipate your interest. You're welcome to join us. My name is Damon Goss, and these are my counsels, Cole and Dr. Arador. Willie Chairs. I'm Captain Picard of the Enterprise. I am serving as host for these proceedings. Good. Then see to it we get some chairs. Let me explain. Fine, fine. Just have your Klingon server and get us some chairs. I'm in charge of security. Then who gets the chairs? Damon. Due to the delicate nature of these negotiations, all parties have agreed that one representative will suffice. Now, I will be happy to provide your consuls with accommodations, and you may have my chair. Very well. Premier? Uh, who um, are have kind of not great-looking 
ships, really. Uh, and they have big ears, and they uh, they have whips, and it's all sort of very phallic and strange, and they jump around like rodents. We don't understand where the hell they came from. However, comma, a strange thing happened. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. On the way to Deep Space Nine, the Ferengi, um, who had been, um, you know, caricatures uh, and sort of silly and an embarrassment and did not, in fact, work out uh, as an adversary on Star Trek, turned to something really interesting. First, it was comic relief. Um, you know, that was uh, Armin Shimmerman as Quark and his relationship with Odo, uh, the station's constable, uh, his family, uh, Nog, uh, and uh, and it, his whole little operation at, at Quark's bar. Um, he was a font of Ferengi wisdom with the rules of acquisition. Um, but as time went on, you know, they became more than, than comedy relief. What they found in that species was more value um, than just, hey, like, this is like a way to score easy points when your entire economy is based on violating all the laws of physics and simply creating things out of thin air. Um, the uh, the Ferengi became interesting. They had their own culture. Uh, and more than that, they had real emotions. If you uh, look at the, at the arc that Nog went through, um, this Ferengi kid uh, who kind of grows up you know, right in front of our eyes, he was the the friend to Jake Sisko, who was the bad friend, and suddenly he's joining Starfleet, and he loses a limb in war, and he suffers through that, and he grows through that. I mean, they yeah. turned into, you know, it, obviously they're only number eight on the list, but it, they didn't turn into the best species in Star Trek, but they turned yeah. into a far more interesting species than they had any right to be. Uh, any right to be at all, um, and uh, I, I think um, you know it's a it's a it's a testament to how good the writing is on Star Trek that they managed to take a, a cartoon and give it depth. I I also want to say that Armin Shimmerman, who was in the Last Outpost, was one of the very first Frankies. Uh, his performance again, one of the things I always thought about Deep Space Nine, and also Mr. Billingsley, the actors that wore these incredible prosthetics. Um, without their performances, it could have got a, a little goofy. You know, and, and uh, Armin Shimmerman is such a gifted actor. Mm. And he was able to bring so many colors to that part. He could do comedy. He could do pathos. Mm. He could do do anything that you uh, uh, gave to him. And, and one of my favorite examples of this, there's an episode... I think it's, I think it's, I want to say it's, um, uh, when the first episode of the, of the fourth season, when the Klingons go to war with the Federation and way of the warrior and you have Garrick, Andrew Robinson in his Cardassian makeup sitting across from Armin Shimmerman in his prosthetic makeup. And they're having a conversation about the Federation and having, you know, drinking root beer and whether or not they're all going to die. Is this, is this, is this the end of our life? You know, and you watch these two guys in these prosthetics and you are absolutely riveted by both of them because their performances rise above their makeup and you are watching a Cardassian and a Ferengi. You never think that they're not anything but what they are. And I think that that, like you said, Ashley, a testament to the writing, but also the actors that they chose to portray these roles, especially on, on Deep Space Nine moving forward. Um, they nailed it. I guess it was Junie Lowry Johnson. It's not Johnson. just Armin. 
Yeah. You know, Max has a very mm-hmm. different take on it, which he's terrific. Uh, obviously, uh, and Aaron Eisenberg. Aaron Eisenberg was superb. Well, uh, you know, and, and 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 Jeffrey Combs in one of yep. his four hundred roles was uh, fantastic when he played uh, Frankie as well. So all. Um, all uh, you know, terrific, and it's such an interesting thing to see the evolution of uh, what was a, a basically a bad joke or a weird obsession of genes that was given so much life through uh, writing and acting, and uh, that's why it's number eight on our list. Also, because they have replicators which make food, but here in the 21st century, we don't have replicators to create food to 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 feed the the huddled masses. And we need we need people who are willing to do the hard work to get food to people who need it the most. And that's why John Billingsley of the Hollywood Food Coalition is so important, isn't it, John? I love this. I love the it's such artful segues. Yes. The Hollywood Food Coalition, which you could support by watching us, Trek Talks, January 13, 10 in the morning Pacific to 6 in the evening Pacific. And you can go to trektalks.net to get all the information you need about it. .com was taken? What's it, trektalks.com? Is it trektalks.com? I think we're going to start squatting on that one. Also, Artful Segue is my porn star name. Oh, oh, really? Mine is Slimy Margon, so you're better off. (laughs) Okay, well, this brings us to number seven on our list. And I was supposed to announce this, but I'm going to give it uh, to another member of the panel because clearly I I have not pronounced (laughs) this alien race correctly since the podcast began. Oh, wait, you're giving me me hope. You're giving me hope. And he has a little more experience uh, uh, pronouncing this. So, uh, net, by the way, you gave me a small fucking heart attack. Oh my god, where's trektalks.com? Woo, trektalks.net, the annual streaming telethon inspired by stuff. <laughs> and what date is that again? January 13, which is a Saturday. January 13th, Saturday. So, you have no excuse not to drop on by. It's a, it's a weekend, you're off, it's a day of rest. You're off. If Shabbos. you don't have some dough to kick our way. Ask your friends to come watch. Maybe they'll kick us some dough. Well, let me ask you a question. Can they they also volunteer? Can they volunteer if if they can't? If you're in Los Angeles, we need people every day to serve, to cook, to work in our warehouse. As I mentioned, we rescue about 3 million pounds of food a year, which has to be mulched, processed, inventoried, stored, and then sent out to the groups we work with. We try and do like what we call concierge-level service. Mm. The groups we work with, we basically say, for instance, a battered women's shelter. How many clients do you have? How much do you need? What do you need? Can you cook? Do you need prepackaged or processed food? Can you pick it up? Can we deliver it? La, 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 la. It's an elaborate conversation with each of these groups. Every one of them is a really integral part of a social service network in Los Angeles. Ashley, your uh, leftovers at Perry's in Austin at that GalaxyCon, you could have fed it. half the population with that, that doggy bag you took home that day. I, I, I truly could have, and I wouldn't, because I still would have intended to eat it all. In fact, actually, I, I went but to But that Perry's. kind of food is being thrown out every day, and what John is saying is that they're uh, able to go to these restaurants and get food that would have otherwise been thrown out, not not prepared. or, or uh, at the end, stores. Which is terrific. We actually started when I began to work with the organization, my wife and I, because we were both actors, and we always had our hearts broken when we went to a wonderful lunch on the set and saw them just kind of... Mm-hmm. Throw out all this amazing food. We started. We started something called the Pickup Artists for the Hollywood Food Coalition, and we mm-hmm. went around to the sets, the movie sets, the TV shows, rescuing that food. 
And that is the food we brought to our home kitchen, started to share with other organizations. That evolved and grew into what we call the exchange program, which is now the three million pounds of food a year rescue program. You really just wanted the petty force for yourself, but everything else went to uh, I, I confess, there were times when I was picking up that food. It was like, you know, could I just, I'm just going to go into the bushes, have a piece of chicken and a petty four, and then I'll be right back with you to bring the food <laughs> to the people who really need it. Well, can you reveal to us our number seven pick? You might have a, a small idea what this is going to be on our list of the top 10 best Trek aliens without dismissing this list by saying, well, what are the other six then? I'm just saying, if, if, it's, if it's what I think it is, if number seven is indeed the Denobulans, I can only say top 10. Holy there you go. You've made it. You've made it. Wow. It may not be an Emmy, but you are on the top 10 best Trek aliens of that? all time holiday countdown. How about so, that? Congratulations. Wow. Anyone sitting here? No. Please, sit down, sit down. Sluggo any better? I'm afraid not. Try the potatoes. They're delicious. Very sequence protein. Yes. The flavors are remarkable. On my home world, people would never think of speaking during a meal. Considered a waste of time. It's taken me a while, but I've grown quite attached to it. Wasting time seems to be all we've been doing. I'm starting to get a little antsy. Angie. Restless. We've been on the move for two weeks and haven't seen a damn thing. <laughs> Every moment's been an adventure for me. Humans are so unpredictable. Have you seen the quantities of food crewman Neymar consumes? Not really. Have you smelled Ensign Socorro after she exercises? Uh, she gives off a fragrance not unlike the adrenal gland of a Norsican. <laughs> And uh, crewman Bennett and Tatum over there, do you see them? If I'm not mistaken, they are preparing to mate. Do you think they might let me watch? It's good to see you're enjoying yourself. The Denobulans, when I got the job, I thought we were going to be a monastic race because you'd never seen a Denobulan. I thought there were only seven of us left. So the reason <laughs> I left Denobula was because I was bored. I had nobody to talk to. And it turns out we're the fuck bunnies of the universe. They're like, <laughs> all of us have multiple spouses. The planet is so crowded. There's no elbow room. We're, we're afraid to be touched. Who knew? Never write your own Bible as a new, as a new species, I can tell you. You're going to be wrong. Brandon based it on his real life. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I heard that one before. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, that like it's such a it's such a. I, I don't want to just breeze breeze over this because you're here uh, and go to the next one. I do want to say, as you said, it was really an inventive race, and you know whether people love Enterprise or it's not one of their favorite shows. Uh, you know, the, the alien characters in Star Trek are always a way in to examine our humanity, whether it's Odo in Deep Space Nine or Spock in the original series, Data. And this was such a great character. And we had never seen, uh, you know, and, and as a doctor, as, as a helper, as somebody who, um, uh, it, it was such an interesting perspective. And of course, you're at the heart of some of the show's best episodes, like Dear Doctor. And, um, uh, you know, it's tough in an Contro ensemble. A controversial like that. episode, indeed. Mm. Controversial episode, indeed. Yes. Well, also, you know, John, not to blow smoke up your ass, but I no, will. I love that. I love when people do you, that. You, your, your performance 
Um, I mean, obviously, following on the heels of you had the Ferengi in Deep Space Nine, and of, of course, you had Neelix in Voyager. But what you brought to the role as an actor, um, you always had kind of a you a bemused sort of everything that happened. You were obs- you were observant, but you're also sort of delighted by even the worst things that might have been happening. You were observing it all, and and you were you were sort of in a way looking at everything from the prism of of adventure and excitement and you loved it all and and I always liked the 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 energy your performance had in the sense in a way it was kind of like me the viewer like what's going to happen next you know and that's why you were even on the ship that's why your character was yeah, there I, I I thought he was on sort of an odd kind of like joyous suicide mission I mean you think it's like you know <laughs> The humans are going to go into outer space for the first time? Really? Oh, that's going to go well. And he still goes along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but that's what made your character so much fun because he really, the Denobulans were defined, an entire species was really defined by you and your performance. And I have to ask, were you, when you were directed and then when you spoke to the writers or Brandon, were you given a lot of leeway to craft your own performance? Well, well leeway in this, and nobody... <laughs> be honest with you, nobody ever said anything to me one way or the other. Wow. I mean, I, I don't think I ever got a single note that was fundamentally characterological. Like, you know, I think you should shade him this way or maybe he's too that way or I, I was left alone. I mean, So how did you come up with your your in, indelible performance as Phlox? It honestly just struck me out of the gate that, you know, what you just said was absolutely true, that this is somebody, you know, they, they give you, they don't give you much. They give you the sides, not even the script for the pilot. And they said, you know, come in with a slight alien accent. It's clearly he's a buoyant character. His optimism, Captain, you know, seemed to me definitional that this is somebody who has kind of a Zen Buddhist approach to life. and. Mm. You know, fundamentally is is we're here, we're gone, you know, the more you stress about it, the more preposterous you are living your life, you know, enjoy the moment, relish the moment, enjoy the adventure and uh, and 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 live morally. You know, that's that's where he was serious. What I thought was interesting about the guy is the depths of his seriousness had to do with trying to live an ethical and moral life moment to moment. But he was not, as many people are, caught up with the kind of existential questions of long lived, will I survive, you know, in another world, all that stuff was like, you know, we couldn't care less about that. We never really found out whether Denobulans had a religion which would have been one of the things that I would have been interested in is, is did they have any kind of um, any kind of faith based philosophy? It struck me as, as not, I always Mm. thought they were, they were fundamentally atheistic, um, but it never really came up. Mm. I I don't know. You know, having played like a a lot of creeps where you have to make, you know, you have to figure out how do you get into the brain of somebody who's a nut this was like, this to me was a piece of cake. I don't think I've ever had an easier acting job. It was like, oh, I like this guy. I know how this guy thinks. I know how he feels. I can totally relate to his his worldview, you know, because it was very similar to mine. So, uh, And you must be, uh, you know, it's amazing to hear 20 years later, you're still talking about the show, this character, that it's opened the opportunity. It's provided this platform for you to speak out about the issues that you care about. Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. I mean, honestly, it's just crazy because, uh, you know, you're a television actor. You know, maybe you occasionally get some decent film work. But generally speaking, you can slog through a whole career. And, you know, at the end of it, you maybe you got a house and you had some laughs. 
And that's it. You're done. Maybe some people like the work. Maybe some people, you know, remember you. But what's weird about this franchise is that, and for me, with the importance of it, is to kind of parlay the fact that you guys are willing to talk to me into some significance in the world I live in, to be able to do something that has some, you know, relevance to people on the ground. It's a great gift. Plus, I can go to any bar in the world and I can say loudly enough, back when I was on Star Trek, and somebody would buy me a beer, which I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, what that's what Rob we do all too. the time. And on the cruise, <laughs> yeah. maybe too. Uh, so, Dr. Flox may have never missed a meal, but there are a lot of people out there who are missing meals because they can't afford it, because they don't have access to quality food. And that's something you're providing through the Hollywood Food Coalition. Yep. And again, if people want to support it, how can they... How can they do that? So, uh, first off, check us out at uh, at hofoco.org, hollywoodfoodcoalition.org, and it'll talk about all the great work we do. I also really think it's important, though, that, you know, there are groups, again, near you that are helping to feed people. And one thing that is really simple and cool that you can do if you're interested is call your friends and say, hey, on Saturday morning, we're going to drive out, and if you can, pick up a bag of groceries from you. Go all the way around town, pick up a bag of groceries from all your pals, stop and have a cup of coffee, you rekindled old friendships, drop it all off at the local food pantry. You've just given them a car full of food. And if you want to metastasize that outwards, you can say to all the people who made those grocery bags, would you be willing to call all of your friends and do the same thing I just did? You've now potentially expanded the capacity of that food bank to bring food to a lot of people in your neighborhood. Because although we're based in Los Angeles and consequently can't provide volunteer opportunities for people all over the country, there are ways, if you care about this, to do more, to get more food to more people where you are. Fantastic. Okay, well, I think you're going to be disappointed because uh, now we have six more to do and we've already, uh, we've already revealed uh, your favorite Star Trek uh, uh, alien. Right. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't expect to even be on the list, so I'm playing with house money. <laughs> oh, okay. It's it's uh, it's it, it's a great character. It's a great species that I think uh, we'd all love to see more of in the future. Um, number six, Darren, tell us what are number six best Trek alien races. Well, number six is basically the first big bad that we meet uh, in terms of an alien race that uh, may or may not be our uh, quote enemies in the show. And uh, they are, in fact, uh, introduced in Balance of Terror, and they are called the Romulans. Now, what we learn from this episode is that the Romulans are a, uh, a very uh, uh, warlike race, but they have uh, honor, uh, and they are uh, loosely, uh, as we learn later, loosely... Uh, based on these two planets, Romulus and Remus, and uh, they are offshoots of the Vulcan race. On screen. Captain Picard, I hardly expected to see you again so soon. It seems this time you are the one who has made an aggressive move across the neutral zone. Commander Tomalok, as I'm sure you already know, we were responding to warnings of Romulan incursions at Nelvana 3. Uh, but Captain... As you can see, there is no incursion. And the matter of the unidentified subspace radio emissions? And the ionization disturbances? Ah, you must mean our orbiting probe. We are studying Nelvana 3 for uh, archaeological research. 
with a cloaked satellite. Oh, really, Captain? Would you have us believe this satellite is an excuse for your aggressive charge across the neutral zone? You can believe what you wish. And we will be on our way. Without even an apology, Captain? If an apology will do, then I offer it. I'm afraid it won't. So I will save you the humiliation. Get to it, Tomalock. You see, Picard, after we dissect your enterprise for every precious bit of information, I intend to display its broken hull in the center of the Romulan capital as a symbol of our victory. It will inspire our armies for generations to come and serve as a warning to any other traitor who would create ripples of disloyalty. The uh, millennia ago, when the Vulcans uh, separated from the Romulans, the Romulans chose the path of emotion and action, and the Vulcans chose uh, uh, thought and logic. And the Romulans become a uh, a formidable adversary to the Federation, and uh, the war games that they play in this first episode are very uh, uh, tricky and challenging. And yet, uh, Captain Kirk and the Romulan commander, uh, reach a sort of uh, mutual admiration society. Uh, based as, on their uh, mutual respect for punctuality. Well, no doubt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but nowhere near the vaunted punctuality no. of the Tholians. Tholians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a, it's a it's quite a uh, it's quite an interesting story. It's uh, loosely based on uh, uh, you know old time uh, submarine movies where uh, we learn that the 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 captain of the adversarial ship is just as clever as our captain, and uh, luckily we uh, come out the winner quote at the end. Um, but uh, the Romulans have uh, you know lived through uh, many. Uh, facets of Star Trek throughout the years, and uh, their race has uh, undergone some uh, rethinking and uh, some reformulation uh, during the various shows. And uh, it's uh, it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating race that um, is is sort of not completely thought out it's you know they they sort of treat them like the uh the romans i mean obviously the name uh the uh the roman legions of history um but uh it's uh, it's a fa fascinating uh race and i think that the idea that they are basically bad vulcans is uh, a fascinating twist did you ever meet Rob the, the remus hi the Remus yeah, line? the Remans. We met them in Nemesis, and we're, we wish we hadn't, but we did. Okay. <laughs> Where do they? So, what's their relationship between the Vulcans and the Romulans and the Remans? Are the Remans like third cousins once removed, or what are they? Well, once <laughs> Remans figured out what cousins. that means in our language, they were really upset. So well, they, they were probably an indigenous race that was there uh, on Remus when the Romulans settled. Romulus. Yeah. The Remans were already there. So, so just they coincidentally, the Romulans found Remus? That seems so... Right. Well, we well, named him that. You know, back to the novels, uh, yeah. Diane Duane, <laughs> Diane Duane posited, and this is why I love reading some of the novels, that you know, the Romulans... He said in Crime and Punishment that the... Uh, no. The Romulans were called, they called themselves the Rihansu. Oh. We were the ones that sort of called them the Romulans. So that was from our perspective. Imperialists! 
honest. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the reasons I read Star Trek books because they filled in all these things I always thought was like like what the Romulans didn't know what ancient Rome was. The Remus right. wasn't Remus. It was like it was like Xanadu, and we called it Remus. We, that's right. exactly right. We went that's willy exactly. nilly all around the universe, just changing the names of the planets and the species to suit our. Yeah, lives. that's right. But I right. think it should be noted again that uh, bring up that the, the not canon. The the actor it was it was Mark Leonard who later played Sarek's box father. Mark Leonard played the Romulan commander of the ship in, in Balance of Terror, and, the and his perf his right. performance defined an entire species. You know, and and I think that moving forward, like like our esteemed Mister Billingsley here defined the Denobulans. His Mark Leonard's performance as the Romulan commander is one of the great star turns or guest star turns in all of Star Trek history. Maybe the episode. great. And, and it, it truly, when he's debating with his centurion, um, the, the idea of duty, that they have, they have exploited a Federation weakness, they are compelled by their duty to report to the Praetor that the Federation, the Federation uh, defenses have a weakness and they can be exploited. And the centurion says, but is that not what we're supposed to do? Isn't that what, that's our job? And when Mark Leonard says, but must it always be so? You know, he says, my gift to the homeland, another war. And the debate that they're having is something that you never saw on a science fiction TV show of the 60s. And watching that and to see that an alien race that could have been set up as, you know, black-hatted villains were actually having a debate over whether their conduct should even be, should even be done in the first place was revolutionary. And, and to me, that, that episode, they've never, ever come close in any of the subsequent Star Trek shows to show the Romulans as they are shown and depicted in Balance of Time. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but I would also give credit to another great character actor who's not on the show, obviously, because he passed away a while ago, Andreas Kasulis, yep. who played uh, Romulan in several episodes of Next Generation and was a recurring uh, foil for that group. And while the depiction of the Romulans isn't nearly as powerful, there are some great Romulan episodes in Next Generation, The Enemy, The Defector, um, even um, uh, um, which, the, the, the one where Riker is right. in the simulation. Um, yeah. uh, and, and certainly uh, they are in the top five ales, correct? I mean, And they're in the top five ales, of course, but it's illegal. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but they're in the top the five, uh, five ales. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, and, and, and in, in deference to, to Mr. Billingsley here, too, uh, it, it, you know, the Romulans were also in an episode, uh, two episodes of uh, Enterprise in season four, um, with a, uh, which prominently features sort of the Romulans sending a remote drone uh, mm -hmm. to sort of probe the Federation defenses. Uh, Brian Thompson, also like who, another character actor who was in a million things. Uh, maybe not as nuanced a performer as some of the other people we mentioned, um, plays the Romulan in that. Uh, and it's a good little episode. It's a good little two-parter. It is. Um, in which, uh, I think, uh, I think, you think was, a guy would remember when he got probed by Romulan, and yet I do not. Well, uh, you know, you were, it was dark. <laughs> you were drunk. Um, you know, what did you say about that? Oh, the irony. First they get me drunk <laughs> on their ale, and then, and then they probed <laughs> me in a two-parter. No. <laughs> a two-part probe. That's no good. Part probe, I know. Uh, like yeah, the thing I always appreciated about the Romulans is twofold. Number one, um, you know, the uh, what what really emerged with them was that they were they were schemers. 
Uh, you know, they were guys with a 20-year plan, a 30-year plan. They were, shall we say, much like our large near-peer Asian competitor, as we used to say in my old business. Um, but also, to get to, to Rob's point about what Mark Leonard was doing in that episode and what he was presenting, you compare and contrast Romulan Commander with Sarek, right? Two roles where guy with pointy ears, like, speaks in sort of very measured tones, but they're very different guys. Why? Because the Vulcans are about logic. The Romulans are Stoics, right? They are, what if Marcus Aurelius just had a society? Like, that's exactly what the Romulans are. And I think in their best expression, um, that's how they behave. And that in and of itself is fascinating because Stoicism isn't the same thing as pure logic. Uh, and I just that's something that I, I wish that they had explored. But again, testament to how good the writing was on that show and how smart those. Yeah, but you were. make the point about how good the writing is, and I and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Unfortunately, the Romulans. This is one of the few places we're let down by yeah. uh, um, the production because they had shoulder pads the size of uh, the size of Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce, um, and they also had um, uh, really bad production design for their bridge, for their um, mm -hmm. uh, the look of the ships. Um, Oh, you know, just so many things about it that they didn't feel alien. It was not executed with finesse, and they were really let down by it. even an episode like Face of the Enemy, where you spend a lot of time on the Romulan ship. It just yeah. it looks like a bad episode of Buck Rogers, you know, John which is too Crawford, bad because again, the writing is very strong. Joan Crawford was also up for the Patty Duke show. I <laughs> <laughs> did not know that either. Surprisingly, in the Joan Crawford show on this episode, she plays with wire hangers. Yeah, and so yeah, another. Yeah. Speaking of Joan Crawford, I was I just rewatched Duel yesterday. Oh um, yeah, for the first time in years, and man, is does that hold up? So good, Duel. So, yeah, this Spielberg's first movie. She's not in it. I'm free associating. Oh, she was, was in say, you know, Spielberg Night Gallery. I don't, I don't. That was yeah, she was in Spielberg's first job. Yeah, in uh, Night Gallery Night, for Night Spielberg. Gallery. Oh, I see. just okay. got this that from the is, UK, the 4K of Duel. Yeah, oh, the 4K you know, Duel. That was still one of his best, absolutely. It's, it's terrific. Okay, well, that was number six, the Romulans. And I know, John, you're really on pins and needles about what number five is going to be. We're about to find out. Is Rob Burnett... It's like what a dog hears, you know. Number seven, Denobulans, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bullshit, 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 my line. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, the Telosians, I think, uh, are, are interesting because they're the very first Star Trek alien species ever depicted in the uh, rejected pilot, The Cage. That was later recycled as uh, in a genius fashion in the two-part first season, the the only two-part original series episode, the Menageries Part One and Two, Menagerie Part One and Two. You'll give her back her illusion of beauty and more. And the Telosians were a once very technologically advanced spacefaring race that had destroyed themselves uh, via a horrible nuclear apocalypse. And they were forced underground. And as their bodies withered, their mental capacities expanded. 
and they became What's happening to me. Can I just say, I know, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just, <laughs> that sense, that's illusion. You're not wrong. I can identify with them. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. And they ended up living a life of illusion <laughs> and they, they expanded their mental powers. And I'll tell you, the design, again, this is what I think especially like people like Wa Chang brought to the the show and, and the, the makeup effects people. The Telosians from, they had Meg Wiley, a woman actually playing, I guess you wouldn't necessarily know whether it's supposed to be a male, but I think it kind of is. But the makeup, the I used to call them buttheads when I was a little kid. Uh, the pulsating buttheads and minor buttheads. It's true. true. The BBs and the buttheads, <laughs> and and the way they were portrayed at first was terrifying. They were absolutely terrifying, and then at the end, all they're trying to do is bring their civilization back. I mean, yeah, they're capturing aliens and they're hoping to cause them to mate and maybe expand their life. But what and, do the books say, Rob? <laughs> I'm just, I don't know. But but all I've always trying. All they're trying to do is to create content, Rob. That's right. They've got their own content. I I can say as a casual Star Trek fan that to me, it was like when I watched those episodes, it was like, I wish a Telosian would capture me. Uh, Yes. You could live out your dreams. You know, it's like, here I am. Here I am. And and you know, John, one dream you would have is no one on Earth goes hungry. And how can we work towards that goal? You're good. You're good. I I know. We need more Telosians. how do we work towards the goal where more people can get good food? Again, figure out what you can do locally. One of the things we're trying to do is model ways to help people get food in the hopes that other people in other communities might look our way and say, I like what they're doing. I like this. I like this. The nature of how they're bringing a community together to figure out how to provide food to social service organizations so that social service safety net is strengthened through the medium of food. That's what we do. The Hollywood Food Coalition, hofoco.org, tracktalks.net. Captain Pike imagined being on a picnic. Well, yeah, yes, he did. Right. And, I, you know, I, again, I just wanted to emphasize at the Meg, Meg Wiley, the actress that played the lead Telosian, when, when, when we as humanity rejects a life of illusion, when Pike rejects it, I love the change in the characters because we believe that the Telosians are villains. They've captured humanity. They're they're putting them in a cage, literally a menagerie with all these other aliens. And when it's revealed that that Pike says no to this, Meg Wiley's performance, the look on her face when she's like, but look, we're giving you everything you want. I mean, you're happy. Like, why don't you want this? And 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 they, the, her performance, the change that she makes is so great in the episode, and you kind of you kind of feel for them when when Pike says no, and and I I love that moment. And what about and then Malachi she, Throne's performance, the voiceover that he does? Oh. You keep saying Meg Wiley, but you know the, the you know the voiceover is dubbed by. Yes, by Malachi Throne and repitched higher. Yes, it's terrific. It is no, it is terrific. And Malachi Throne obviously is in the Menagerie Part One and Two. Um, We have a great Malachi Throne story, Mark. Yes, I know, but we're not going to tell. We won't tell it. But uh, why he wasn't in Free Enterprise? I really enjoy this performance. I really love the Telosians. They were brought back, you know, later on in modern Star Trek. Which are they on my series too? Is that another alien? No, 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 they were, 
They, I, they, I just, they I were not. For the better part of this, of the of the whole fucking thing, apparently. <laughs> well, no. you know, people. You know, I want to just say, people forget when they, you know, they ask the actors all these questions. So, in episode thirty-two, uh, what do you think was? It's like you on, on a seven-day, eight-day shoot. You might be working three days. You know, uh, yes, I know. And a lot of actors, by the time they're into um, later seasons, they only be reading their part. Now, a good actor reads the whole script for context. Yeah, I know. I, you're, talking about, actors, you're talking about Dominic Keating. I know that you're talking <laughs> about Dominic Keating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, can, you um, know yes, those, I, those I actually just had a song I used to sing, in fact, called, have you heard my song, Day Off? Did I hear ever play, sing you my song, Day Off? No? Uh, uh, no, you, you haven't. Do, do we want to hear it? I think you do. Okay. Day Off! Day Off! Six days off and the check still come. <laughs> Six days off and the check still come. I used to sing that song to Dominic because I was breezing off the set after my, oh my goodness. day of work. <laughs> That's I usually looked him up when he was in a spacesuit, and I tried to sing it to them, him then. For some reason, I can never really understand exactly. I get maximum pleasure from giving Dominic maximum annoyance. So Wow. And he would say, God bless, God bless. That's the crazy thing about Denise Crosby, that she left. She wasn't getting enough work. But, you know, it, 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 I guess, look, the actors in, in, at that time were getting paid even less. But it was um, it was like, why not stick with it? Well, you, <laughs> you know, know, it is funny. It's like all actors gamble. I mean, you know, you hear these stories all the time about like an actor had, I could have chosen this, I could have chosen that. You choose between pilots, you choose between gigs. You know, you ain't got a crystal ball. Denise had no idea it was going to work. Yeah. He thought yeah. she was on like a flop. And, and so they had shitty craft services, which is true. And she, she wanted used to complain about craft services. She had to go over to Cheers to raid their craft services because yeah. they had the better food. Well, we didn't have, you know, what the, our gag, you know, on Enterprise, and I imagine this was true, is that they didn't provide a meal. So, you know, at lunch break, it, they would bring a meal in if you were wearing an alien head. Everybody else was supposed to go, you know, to the, to the commissary. commissary. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't get. You didn't. You didn't get a meal catered at uh, for yep. for lunch. You didn't get lunch. Yep. No, it was walk away lunch. Like, wow. Yeah, wow. and candidly, a lot of shows had a walk away lunch. NYPD Blue had a walk away lunch for years. Huh. If they wow. had commissary on the lot, they expect you to go to the commissary. However, Angel, which was next door, they did not have a walk away lunch. They had an amazing lunch, and it was always fucking infuriating because you could smell the steak like wafting over <laughs> to your trailer. I actually did an episode of Angel the first season because they let me kind of cherry pick. I could kind of go and get another gig if I was going to be. Sure. So, so I got an episode of uh, angel and I made sure that every day I would take this beautiful steak and I would go and sit and I would eat it uh, out in front of Dominic's trailer. Just so, he could, <laughs> you know, um, I make it sound like I'm mean. I'm not mean. It's just Dominic. He brings it out. How would we think you're mean? You're here indulging this nonsense of a alien top 10 list to promote the Hollywood Food Coalition and helping people who need a helping hand. No one thinks you're mean. <laughs> well, uh, well, no, I, there are a few people who think I mean, but, but she's not here right now. So, <laughs> she, one she, of the three wives. She's actually, I will say, I mean, one of the reasons the Hollywood Food Coalition has grown to the extent it has is because when we joined in 2017, we kind of thought, you know, it's amazing what we do in terms of serving a hot meal every day, but we really need to see if we can figure out a way to rescue more food and share it with bigger communities so people will perceive the mission as being bigger. And mm -hmm. my wife on the ground did so much from the um, 
food rescue on sets to establishing the exchange. And even now she runs something I'll show you. Is this going to be, is it, we just hearing our voices or were these? No, this is just audio. So you, okay, you know. then, then I let, let it be known that I'm revealing my breast and emblazoned <laughs> on the, the only one my he has. T-shirt and one of my breasts, uh, you will see a little insignia that says the uh, Hollywood Food Coalition in this, in a lunch bag, because every Sunday, about uh, 200 participating families make multi-element lunch bags, which are dropped off at our uh, at one of our spots, and we share them and distribute them through the uh, collaboration of other community groups all over the city. So every Sunday, around 3,000 beautiful lunch bags go out to homeless encampments. And that's one of the things that my wife has done. She has been, in my opinion, the unsung hero of the Hollywood Food Coalition for years now. See, and what people say is that all these are too big, uh, you know, big in issues. How can we ever address it? But what you're doing is you're, you're dealing with it, biting off what you can chew yeah. and, you know, dealing with it on a level, a local level that's growing. I mean, it, only in the last couple of years has sort of food rescue become something that people are even aware of and, and, yeah. and, and concerned and, about. And, and, you know, it's not even food rescue. It's everything from, you know, for education, environment, yada, yada, yada. There are very few people who have the capacity to change things on a national or an international or a global level. But all of us have the capacity to do something locally that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And there's a woman uh, that I think is a personal hero of mine named Frances Perkins, who was Roosevelt's labor secretary. And when Roosevelt took office, he was looking around for people who had ideas. Geez, what do I do? We're in, you know, in a shambles. Frances mm-hmm. Perkins had done a lot of social work in and around New York, creating all sorts of innovative programs to try and figure out how to get people back to work, how to get them fed, how to get them clothed, how to get them housed. The foundations of the New Deal, in, in, in many ways, were based on her innovative programs in, in a city. That's, you know, you can make a difference locally, and who knows where it'll grow into. And you know who made a change, but it was all an illusion, the Telosians. But John and the Food Coalition are making real change. That's not an illusion. So you can participate uh, by checking out the, the uh, Trek Talks on um, January 7th, right? 13th. January, 7th. January, 13th. January 13th. Don't January go 13th. on the 7th. You'll be waiting a long 7th. time. Yeah. January, January 13th. 13th. org. if you want to learn more. Now, I'm curious. Number, what are we up to? Number five? We're up to number four, and Ashley's number about to tell us. Four. What well, is know, our number four pick for greatest Star Trek aliens of all time? If you really want an alien race to solve hunger, why then this next alien race at number four is uh, is who you want. Because you send the Jem'Hadar to collect the food, you ask the Vorta to decide who it should be distributed to, and everyone serves the founders. Uh, I'm referring to the Dominion. Federation reinforcements are approaching Chintanga. The more of them, the better. Founder, it concerns me to have you this close to the front. Your concern is noted. But this is one battle I intend to see firsthand. Yes, it should be most gratifying. The big bad of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, who over time, beginning in the first season through the second into the third, were slowly introduced um, into the uh, the Star Trek milieu. They were uh, an adversary uh, from the Gamma Quadrant, uh, accessible through the wormhole. And um, 
our encounters with them uh, made us quickly realize that they were unlike any alien race, species, organization that uh, Starfleet had encountered before. And in many ways, um, they were more of a mirror Starfleet than a mirror Starfleet was mirror Starfleet. Uh, a, 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 a coalition of, in some cases, genetically engineered alien servants of the shape-shifting founders, in other cases, uh, simply races planets that had been brought to heal. Um, or uh, there's used to be a term in uh, in real politic called Finlandization, which meant that uh, you decided to play nice because the guys next to you were just so big and scary. Um, in Finland's case, of course, you're talking about the Soviet Union. Um, I think Finland, it was great. Finland didn't Dominion. really play nice, though. Finland like said, "Screw you, come get me." Well, eventually, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but Finland remained neutral and never joined NATO because uh, they recently. didn't want to get their asses invaded. They, they learned their lesson before the Second World War. But That's Finland, right. gave, Finland gave Stalin the fight of their of his life. Yeah. The, the, by the way, those people they're they're awesome, and they also they live they're, in a very cold climate. Amazing. I, uh, and, and the happiest people in the world, according they, to. All the various and sundry, you know. They totally are. And they've got a great expression, Sisu, which means, number one, um, basically anything that sort of gives you happy and purpose. And number two, movie about an old man who kills the unholy shit out of Nazis. But uh, we, I we digress. Digre I know you digress, but I'm just curious. Are you Finnish? No, I just, I went to Finland last year. I, I, I took my insane children to meet Santa Claus. And so we went to the North Pole. Uh, and it was quite. He's not kidding, had, John. Love he really did man. this. Where yeah. are you this, taking him to meet the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy? I'm just curious. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the Tooth Fairy. Well, we're going to do a you know the marathon, man, and um, as, <laughs> the the Easter Bunny. You know that's uh, that's the next. I thought you went through Estonia to get to to. Yeah, the we North did. Pole. We went through uh, to Lynn uh, into uh, to Rovaniemi in uh, in in Finland, and then. And then there to Casablanca, went. and you and waited, and waited, waited, I, I waited. I feel waited. like I'm beginning to feel like my purpose here is to not allow you to talk about the aliens, but instead to make you digress into ridiculous areas. Like, oh, I can. No, that's all purposes. All. Podcast. <laughs> if we're not digressing, we're doing it wrong. Okay. All right. Good. Well, I, but I, I'm glad I, you brought up this podcast because we're at number three in Robert Byer Burnett. <laughs> what is our number three? <laughs> number three. For the number three. Top ten aliens. And if you can tie it to the Finns in some way, that would be great. Or the food coalition. Uh, well, I think that uh, number three is is another uh, another alien race that was introduced originally in the Next Generation mm -hmm. in the fourth season in an episode called The Wounded. That uh, and Mark Alamo was just like Armin Shimmerman before him uh, played the lead Cardassian in the episode. And so, two years ago, our government signed a treaty with the Dominion. In it, the Dominion promised to extend Cardassia's influence throughout the Alpha Quadrant. In exchange, we pledged ourselves to join the war against the Federation and its allies. Cardassians have never been afraid of war, a fact we've proven time and again over these past two years. Seven million of our brave soldiers have given their lives to fulfill our part of the agreement. And what has the Dominion done in return? Nothing. We've gained no new territories. In fact, our influence throughout the Quadrant has diminished. And to make matters worse, we are no longer masters in our own home. Travel anywhere in Cardassian, what do you find? Jem'Hadar, Borta, and now Breen. Instead of the invaders, we have become the invaded. Our allies have conquered us without firing a single shot. Well, no longer. 
This morning, detachments of the Cardassian 1st, 3rd, and 9th Orders attacked Dominion Outpost on Rondak 3. This assault marks the first step toward the liberation of our Colonel, homeland. See if you can get confirmation on that. From of the Alpha Quadrant. I call upon Cardassians everywhere. Resist. Resist today. Resist tomorrow. Resist till the last Dominion soldier has been driven from our soil. Uh, an actor whose face was full of prosthetics. And at first, the Cardassians are set up as being adversaries to the Federation. And they're pulling shenanigans, they're running guns, and they're pretending they're not. And I uh, I like that episode a great deal. Bob Gutton, Gutton plays a Starfleet commander who suspects... Not a great character actor that we love. And has proven to be correct. I did a movie with him. Um, and then, of course, later, uh, we see the Cardassians again in the sixth season in Chain of Command. And Edward Jellicoe, the great Ronnie Cox, doing a two-parter, Chain of Command Part 1 and 2, says this about the Cardassians. The Cardassians are like timber wolves, predators, bold in large numbers, cautious by themselves, and with an instinctive need to establish a dominant position in any social gathering. And... I think the Cardassians were the Cardassians are a great uh, creation of Next Generation, but they truly came into their own in Deep Space Nine. And obviously, Mark Alamo plays the great Gul Dukat, one of the great secondary characters. I mean, he might not have wound up in the best place in the series, but for the better part of Deep Space Nine's seven-year running time, Mark Alamo defined the Cardassians. His uh, Damar, another great, played by the great Casey Biggs, another great actor. The Cardassian race was, it was once a peaceful religious race that sort of fell into this martial militaristic uh, uh, art was something they worshipped and then it was revered and they would sort of, they left it behind and they were a really well-defined race because we got to to meet them over the course of the entire series so we learned a yeah, lot right about yeah. When you say what's interesting is, is a lot of these races, next generation inherited the Romulans, the Klingons, you know, a lot of these races. But the, the, the Cardassians were something uniquely um, to uh, next generation. They were created for next generation. Then they really found, you know, Deep Space Nine became the the, the central antagonist for, for uh, you know, throughout the seven years. And it really is one of the most successful contributions Next Generation made to the mythology. And I think Michael Westmore's triumph in terms of uh, prosthetics and also in costuming. Uh, no, I completely agree. I mean, I love, unlike what they did with the Romulans, every Romulan wore the same thing. With those, it, it, the, the Cardassians, when we saw them, because they were, we really saw their military. You know, we didn't get a lot of, we didn't get a great look at their civilians until later. But what I really liked about the Cardassians were, again, they were not evil. They were not mustache-twirling villains. They were truly uh, antagonists. And what was interesting is, through Mark Alamo's performance as Gul Dukat, obviously he was a father. You know, he had changes of sides over the course, and then he was possessed by demons <laughs> later on in, in, in the series. What do you and, think, John? You agree, number three, Cardassians? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not a completist the way you fellows are, so I, can, I can't really weigh in for much of this. I'm just curious because you're not really talking about their sexual appeal very much. <laughs> no, they're sexy. 
They're sexy. They were sexy, and they had yeah. females that were sexy too. Because it occurs to me that the Denobulans, something that I should have mentioned earlier, were the only species, as far as I know, that only wore the pajamas. We were like the Hugh Hefners of outer space when you think about it. You know? <laughs> Every day I would come to work and I would get into a pair of pajamas and I would go to work. And I, I think, you know, I, who else kind of has the suavity of the Denobulans? Not many. You know, I'm you need, to you need that long that, cigarette that, holder. That, you know, exactly. I know. It's like maybe number seven is a little low. I'm just thinking, you know, as I'm hearing about these other species, they all sound very nice. I'm sure they're very <laughs> nice. But not sexy. Well, Maybe I have. John, I got something to say about that. So, in the script notes for the wounded, by the way, I'm getting this off Memory Alpha. According uh, to the no, script, you can't, you can't, you can't, and we don't do that here. Sure, you can. Let sure, you can. can't look at you can't look at reference We're material. The Rubicon I now. just looked this up to address something that John is saying because this this Ask applies. It. Somebody else is wearing pajamas too. Um, according to the script notes from the wounded, the Cardassians were described as humanoid aliens that were sleek, handsome, and intense, but. In the script notes for the first draft of The Chase from the sixth season, there is a female Cardassian, Osette. And this is the first time we ever saw an adult female Cardassian. And they could possess the kind of sexual dimorphism apparent in many species. The neck veins, for instance, might be more pronounced and colorful in Cardassian females than in book? males. Oh, yeah. No, that was in the script notes for the, how uh, they designed a Cardassian oh, female. Script notes. What so a I'm shock. Just, Everybody I'm just, likes I'm, a multicolored neck vein. I'm yeah. just telling you, <laughs> sexual dimorphism. I wanted to find you know something appealing for a Denobulan. I think you might have... I don't uh, know. That just brings out my... Sexual dimorphism is my play. band. There you go. Go. I just looked. I wanted to find something. It's something. a funk band. You know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Yeah. I'm just and now this brings us up to number band. two, right? It does bring us to number Are two. Are we going to have that good? the two obvious species? You think? We, I don't we, know. We there, try I not. It's Klingons, Vulcans, and the Borg. We'll right. see. There's only we'll one see. way to find out. Okay, number two. Nobody could have predicted space Nazis as our number one Star Trek villain. That's they right. I thought it was going to be Q. Not even the Nazis. Wow. So, okay. Well, I have the honor of addressing number two. Number one. Uh, <laughs> wow. uh, it is, in fact, the Klingons. Wolf. General. The High Council has issued a commendation for the entire crew of the Rotaran. It would seem that you were right. They view the destruction of a Jem'Hadar ship and the rescue of 35 warriors as ample justification for crossing the Cardassian border. Your actions on the Rotaran. At the time, I thought they were disloyal. But I have come to realize that your intention was to remind me of my duty as a soldier of the Empire and as a warrior. For that, I am grateful. You did the same for me once. Worf! On the bridge, during the fight, when you dropped your guard, how did you know I would not kill you? I did not know. <laughs> I see you're still wearing the crest of the House of Moog. Yes. Jadzia calls it a sentimental gesture. Uh, perhaps you would consider replacing sentiment with the symbol of a new beginning. The House of Martok. 
would be honored to welcome the son of Moog into our family as a warrior and as a brother. You guessed right. How predictable. It's really sad. But, but what, I mean, they're, you what know, was it? They're, what, they're number two for a reason. They're like, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They got their own damn theme song, man. They, were, they have they their were own the language great... academy. I got they're letters great. when I was on the show saying, would you care to make a donation to fund a scholarship for somebody to go to the Klingon language academy? You'll be surprised I did not make a contribution. But I'm I shocked. Thought, wow. Yeah, but they could make a donation to the Hollywood Food Coalition by that going more, on January thirteenth. That was more or less the letter I wrote them. Actually, it was like, <laughs> did you? You said I can't help you, but perhaps you can help me. I was yeah. I was with a different organization at the time, but yes, that was my that was my. Story. Oh, okay. So Klingons, why are they on the list, Aaron? The original series episode that introduces them, Errand of Mercy, where we are introduced yes, to the Klingons it. as basically a. Uh, a corollary of the Chinese, actually. It wasn't originally the uh, Russians, as a lot of people think. But uh, John Kolikos, who played Kor, the leader of this troop of even Klingons, had a Maoist kind of look it was, in his it, makeup. It, it, it was, you know, it, it was sort of a racist Fu Manchu uh, outfit that he was in. Uh, uh, but he played it with such delight Panache. And uh, and and panache, yes, panache you ever as well. With John Calicos, John. No, I think it was before my time. Oh, okay. Oh, I, you know, he, he was. You know, he crossed at the very end when you were first getting started in the business. He was like almost, you know, done. But he was also another really interesting character actor. Obviously, we know him from Star Trek. But in the remake of Postman, always rings twice. I mean, Battlestar uh, Galactica. He could eat the scenery with the best of them. Though, this guy. <laughs> no, never, never, uh, never met him. Never met. Okay, never met him. He was. He I was worked with Paul Dooley about a year oh, ago. Uh, Paul Dooley's great. Ninety-three years He's old. Amazing. I think wow. ridiculous. I was like, wow. speaking of great Cardassians, you yeah. think he could beat Shatner in a fight? If we had the two 93-year-olds fight, I don't think so. I, I, I think Shatner so. would kick I, his butt. Yeah, Shatner could probably kick his butt. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it, was, it was an utter delight to get to spend time with Paul Dooley. Although I have to say, Paul Dooley, Paul Dooley's entire conversation consisted of, you know, you know who they wanted for that. They wanted me, and I turned it down. It would have been better if I was in it. You know who they really should have gotten for that? Me. I would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> this is his entire conversation. It was like he was convinced he should have and could have played everything. Casablanca. I could have been the captain. Bogart was okay, but you know who they really wanted? They wanted Paul <laughs> I mean, he's, he's no Stephen Root. That Jolene Blaylock's sexy, but I could have played that role. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I say that because I'm fairly sure that Paul Dooley is not watching, so I can get away with silly <laughs> <laughs> jokes. Well, next, next week on the podcast, yeah. Paul Dooley. <laughs> Do you, are there more things to say about the Klingons that, that need to be said a, a couple more? A couple okay, more. All right, all right. I'm sorry, I keep uh, interrupting you because it's my name. He's anxious to know who number one is. I know, I, I know he is, but that's that's anticipation. That's uh, that's it's making like way. building gotcha. desire. Yeah. Okay, tell us why we oh, yeah. picked the Klingons, Terry. Well, you know, uh, obviously, John Kalikos as uh, Kor wanted to kick Kirk's ass, 
But, uh, you know, he was foiled. He was foiled by uh, an older god race that put a stop to all of this. All right. Those guys should be number one, right? (laughs) You know what? We'll find out. If if we had ever heard from them again, they probably would have been. We did. They wrote a book. They were too good for us. They were an enterprise. They They were an observer effect. One of them wrote a trivia book. Let's not go confusing people. Um, (laughs) But the great thing about the great thing about the Klingons is that they have lived uh, throughout all of Star Trek history, and they've uh, morphed into different uh, versions of themselves. But they've always been there, and uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, Gary Shandling was so uh, enamored with them that he wanted William Shatner on a speakerphone to say the word. How did we not have that on our best pop culture references? We just Shatner is on Larry uh, the Larry uh, Larry Sanders. Sanders. And he says, say the word Klingon. Gary Shandling says, say the word Klingon. (laughs) So great. But anyway, obviously the Klingons are are loved by factions of fandom uh, to such an extent where they wish that they were Klingons and they live life as Klingons and speak amongst each other in Klingonese. And it's it's disturbing, but it is fascinating. Why don't they dress up as Denobulans, John? They dress up as Klingons. Like, what is the appeal of the Klingons? I, I, I know it is. It is an unfortunate thing, you know. This sort of martial strain in us. There is just something appealing about dressing up and going. Ah, it's like being pirates. When you're a kid, you want to play a pirate. When you're an adult, you want to be a Klingon. Me, uh, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I would definitely kind of suggest to people that maybe they should start thinking about dressing up as Denobulans. You'd probably get laid more, in my opinion, at conventions if you dressed up as a as a as a foxy Denobulan kind of. Well, see, I like to see people put that to a test. Yeah, I think they will. Try that at Dragon. He just got some great advice. That's some great advice. Well, that brings us before we reveal our number one the uh, uh, pick for the greatest Star Trek alien of all time. We're going to quickly tell you our honorary mentions for people that could have or should have made the list. And uh, we'll start uh, Ashley Edward Miller. Uh, my honorary mention is going to go to uh, to an incredibly uh, well designed, well thought out, well presented race. Uh, who we were actually first introduced to in the in the next generation with Ensign Rowe. I'm speaking of the Bajorans. Um, the uh, the Bajorans had just a a really fascinating culture that was very layered. Um, you know, they had we and we saw instances of this. Not only did they have a religion that formed the one of the centerpieces, one of the pillars of storytelling for Deep Space Nine, um, but they had a politics that was interesting. They had a culture that was interesting. They had art. And, you know, we could see like how all of that represented itself always in Deep Space Nine. So in a way, we probably saw more of them than we saw of of anyone else. Uh, There were great actors uh, who played Bajorans. I mean, not just um, Michelle Forbes as uh, as Ensign Rowe and our beloved Nana Visitor uh, as Major Kira Norris. But you had people like Brian Keith, Christopher Lee, Louise Fletcher, um, all playing Bajorans, all playing these religious Uncle leaders. Bill was a Bajoran? That's right. Yep. It he was would. a Bajoran. And Mr. French was also in that episode. It was he crazy. Was he was a Bajoran. He had these two Bajoran, they were little toe headed children and they were so cute. And then Kira burned their house down. It was fantastic. You're a liar. Mr. Okay. I was, I was Christopher <laughs> Lee, Frank Langella. 
Frank Langella. God damn it. I knew it was Dracula. Did you Thank say you. Christopher Lee? Yes, yeah. I did. Oh you know God. what, Mark Altman? You don't get to lecture me on this. Christopher Lee no, was no, in no, fact. I mispronounced it. things. I he was in Space 1999, but not brain, Deep Space Nine. I had a senior moment. I had a neuron just go. I, but you know what? Christopher Lee would have played the shit out of a Joran. I think we can agree. Yes. He would have been a great Cardassian, too. Actually, yeah, he would have. Yeah, because Ashley, the weekend that uh, John is doing the Trek talks, Ashley is doing Space 1999 talks. There are yes. only going to be like three people there, but he's going to try and raise money, too. <laughs> Ingrid um, Bergman would have made an amazing. <laughs> yeah, Ingrid Bergman played Tora Zial. Uh, so she was a Cardassian, which was crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Do you ever and play it, that game where it's like, if you go back in, in history and say, what recast. actor, like, you know, 10 actors, Humphrey Bogart, which alien would they have played? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. that's interesting. You don't have to do that I now. Bogart I would have been a boy. No, we're not doing Bogart. No, we Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, blah, 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 cast them as an alien. Which alien would they be? Right. Yeah, that's which which alien would they be? I, I feel a whole new episode coming on. But okay. Mickey, but Mickey Rooney would have been great in Back to the Future. I'm Mickey Rooney is going to be a, a, a Ferengi. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and absolutely. Robert Murray Burnett, what's your pick for honorary mention? Well, probably not surprising coming from me because I've been belaboring the point of this episode for the last 25, 30 years. But I'm going to take you back to a third season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Survivors. And the great John Anderson, who played uh, Jonathan Frake's father in North and South, um, John Anderson played a creature called a Dowd. I am a Dowd, an immortal being of disguises and false surroundings. I have lived in this galaxy for many thousands of years, although until today no one has known my true identity. Once, while traveling in human form, I chanced to fall in love with an Earth woman. I put aside my powers and became her husband. Our life was happy and rich. Eventually, we came to this planet to live our final years. Now she is dead. She never knew what I really was. Your colony was attacked by a warship. Belonging to the Husnak, a species of hideous intelligence, knew only aggression and destruction. I could have destroyed them with a mere thought, but I did not do so. You had the power to stop them, but you didn't? I refused to for the same reason that I refused to stop the Enterprise. I will not kill. And this uh, creature could take human form and live amongst other, uh, presumably not just humans, but was an immortal that lived for a very long time. That uh, while he was in human form and took a human wife, uh, they were attacked by the Husnak and every human being that was around this character was killed. And uh, John Anderson, his character, in, in anger, struck out with his omnipotent powers and actually committed true genocide and wiped the Husnak from the face of the cosmos. And as he said, you do not understand the scope of my crime. I destroyed all the Husnak everywhere. The star of many great Twilight Zone episodes in Star Trek's version of a Twilight Zone episode. And he is sensational. Another great character actor. Uh, my pick for honorary mention, uh, I, I was 
thinking of, you know, two of my favorites, uh, the Edwians, which were uh, Mr. Eric's in the animated series, the Binars, but I've talked about them so many times. I'm going to pick a race that I rarely talk about. It's the Vidians from Voyager introduced in the episode Fage, which shows the danger of genetic manipulation. And, Page. Uh, Page. Page. Fage. Denubulans, denobulans. Let's call That's the whole thing yeah. off. It's difficult to pronounce the name of aliens. Top ten. It should be simple. That's how we rate these. That's why you're so low on the list. I know. Because I know. it's very I easy know. to say Klingons. I know. Or I know. you know, Cardassians. Know. That's but, why I'm pretty pretty sure the Vulcans and the Borg are going to be number one. Well, we'll see. Because the question right. is, are the Borg an alien race? Because it's basically a cybernetic race connecting multiple races, you know, through the internet. So <laughs> it's an it's an affliction. Right. Oh, oh, it's oh, like, oh, it's an, an affliction. An Ending. No, of, I don't uh, know. Best it could be. We'll find out. But before we find out our number one pick, we got to go to Darren for his honorary mention <laughs> of top ten best Trek aliens. My honorary mention comes from the season three TOS episode uh, "Specter of the Gun," the Melkotians. It was Russian, sir. Every word. No, Captain. It was Swahili. Interesting. Telepathy. Unquestionably. Most impressive. Our orders are very clear. We're to establish contact with the Malkotians at all costs. True telepaths can be most formidable, Captain. And we have been warned. What previous contacts have been made with the Malkotians? No recorded contacts. If they ever ventured into space, they evidently withdrew immediately. Who Ooh. are not only wow. not only sort I of love uh, that. wooden-headed floating uh, uh, aliens in in mist, uh, but they are really bad at uh, building sets. They only build the front uh, faces of buildings, <laughs> and uh, uh, they are they're really really stupid. Uh, but I, I I love them, and they're they're creepy, and there you go, the Melkotians. And they're the most alien of the aliens on this list. Yeah, they're, they're, it's really but remarkable. They're floating. The, they're floating woodheads. Who are the aliens where where Kirk uh, is is uh, in the like the the guy who's actually a child, but he's pretending to be an aristocrat? Something? That is Trelane, Trelane. Squire Trelane. of Gothos, yes. played by the well, great William Campbell. What was his alien species? It's uh, it isn't really said, but. Uh, People have uh, speculated Thasians. that he's part of the Q continuum. I don't no, know if I go Thasian. on with that. He's a Thasian. He's a Thasian? What? No. Did you want that to be your pick? Trelane is not a Thasian. Isn't he a Thasian? Oh, no, no. Charlie X. That's Charlie, Charlie, Charlie X. Okay. Yeah, no, so no, no. Christopher Lee was a Thasian. <laughs> by the way, in the Star Trek novel Q Squared by Peter Barbara David. Barbara Babcock. So, Barbara Babcock and Bart LaRue, right? That's right. So that's what anyway, we know. I just called them the Twinklies because the they, Twinklies, the Twinklies, we like that. Mm, Twinklies, that your and all the Twinklies, Bob and Elaine. Uh, the, the Twinklies seem to me like the guys who stopped the Klingons and the and the uh, Earthlings from fighting to seem to be kind of like you know the ones I'd least like to kind of get pissed off at me. Well, I mean, those are uh, the Organians. That's right, the Organians. The Organians. You know, the Twinklies could create matter from nothing. So they could create an abundance of food like you're doing with the Hollywood Food Coalition. And uh, I think that would be something that they could do to make up for the way their child acted up 
uh, That's true. in that episode. Many of these species could do amazing things to help people in need. But of course, unfortunately, we mere humans are the ones who have to do the heavy lifting. That's so right. Perhaps you can consider contributing to the Hollywood Food Coalition. Go watch Trek Talks. You're very good at giving me these segues. Trek Talks. <laughs> go to trektalks.net to find out more. January 13, 10 in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. Surely we are ready for the number one. Indeed we are, Mr. Billingsley. Uh, would you like to guess what our number one pick is, or should we just let... It, if it isn't Vulcans, I'm going to be shocked. Well, I can't tell a lie, much like the Vulcans. Indeed, our number one pick, much to no one's surprise, is the Vulcans. And you, Sarek, would you also say thank you to your son? I don't understand. Well, for saving your life. Spock acted in the only logical manner open to him. One does not thank logic, Commander. Logic, logic. I'm sick to death of logic. Do you want to know how I feel about your logic? Emotional, isn't she? She has always been that way. Indeed. Why did you marry her? At the time, it seemed the logical thing to do. At the very heart of the appeal of Star Trek is this very logical and 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 and, and uh, uh, race uh, apparently believed to have no emotions, but they suppress their emotions. Or and uh, as as they are originally called, the Vulcanians. The Vulcanians, of course, uh, brilliantly depicted from the original series. Uh, uh, less brilliantly depicted in, in some later series. But I have to say, one of the great Vulcan performances may have been your co-star, Jolene. And I know she struggled initially, but she really found she found that character. And by the end of the show, she was really doing a terrific job. I mean, she's one of the, the great Vulcan characters. What do yeah. you think of that? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think the thing is, is that, you know, you have to, within, within the species, there are still going to be incredible shades based on a person's personal story. She's a young woman who's mm -hmm. struggling how to balance, and she's not necessarily where she where she wants to be. This assignment right. was not necessarily an ideal assignment for her. Her act of suppression, if suppression is the best way to phrase it, is intensely demanding. Spock has had a lifetime of learning how to kind of balance these things, as painful as it may be. I thought Jolene did a great job at taking somebody for whom the struggle and the turmoil of being someplace as tricky as this had to be managed. I mean, she, I think, really was fabulous in the role. I wish she was more prevalent in the Star Trek world right now so she could... Well, I think when you marry a multimillionaire slash, uh, uh, it, it's very easy to... to, to <laughs> and three kids. And three kids. That's yeah, what I And did. three kids. No. But she just, also just, is very engaged in philanthropy. And so yeah, in her yeah. own way, she's giving back just in a different way. I've been trying to reach her. Do you know how to reach her? I may have a way to reach her. So we'll have to talk about that. Like the about that. I would you know. love I would love to bring her on. To, people ask me about her more than anybody else. It's like, is there any way? We well, because she's not ubiquitous, because she really has kept a low profile. And it's not because I think that she doesn't like her association with Star Trek. It's like she's kind of moved on. But, you know, the thing that's interesting about Jolene is she's one of these people who was a fan, like yeah. a, the Spa character. She loved the real, and she was kind of disappointed with, she didn't get, you know, much like Terry, who was young and hadn't had a lot of experience and didn't get the support that she needed, but eventually delivers this really great performance. But, you know, it was a struggle for her to find that because she wasn't getting the kind of support 
you know, from the front office that maybe she could have. And at that point, you know, people expected everyone to be self-starters and just know what they were doing. And, and, uh, but I think, you know, it's a great performance and it's really, uh, you know, at the heart of that show. I mean, she is oh, yeah. that, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's funny. I watched an episode the other day because uh, somebody asked me like, what was your favorite episode? And the one I remembered really liking the most is one where we, tr- we clone trip. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was also the episode where she realizes she, in fact, has feelings for Trip, right. even though she's really falling in love with the clone. And and it was lovely. She just does an absolutely lovely job. And it really made me, it made me remember how good she was, you know? So what was your favorite episode of Suits? Because, you know, we would never ask such a ridiculous question. What's your favorite uh, episode of Star Trek? That's the, the most I, disliked I, uh, question by I Star Trek actors ever. I one episode of Suits, and it was the one I was in. And there, thereby, I would have to say that was my favorite episode. <laughs> what actually is your true. favorite show? That you, you know, what, like, what, what do you love? Uh, I love Better Call Saul. I love the, uh, I loved Breaking Bad. I loved um, uh, Succession. I love mm-hmm. the Sopranos. I like those dark, twisty, um, scary, multi-episode cable shows where you just don't know what's going to happen next, where it's not, you know, because it's a network show, fairly clear that you're not going to have your, you know, seven leads endangered ultimately. Right. Uh, I like the surprising aspect of, of really great top Well, three. Vince Gilligan's doing a new show with Ray Seahorn, and he should give you a call because uh, we don't see know. enough of John Billingsley, and we You're need to see more. God's- from your mouth to God's ears. Holy well, shit. Well, we are so grateful to have you on uh, our top 10 Star Trek Alien Countdown. And uh, before we let you go, I just want you to remind the audience where they can find out how they can support the Hollywood Food Coalition and join the Trek Talks um, on uh, the 13th of January. Absolutely. So there are a bunch of places you can go if you want to learn about the Hollywood Food Coalition and how to watch Trek Talks at the same time. You can go to hofoco.org. That's short for the Hollywood Food Coalition, H-O-F-O-C-O.org. If you want to go directly to tracktalks.net, that will also give you the information you need to watch us. And we are also sponsored by three wonderful groups, Trek Geeks, the Roddenberry Podcast, and Trek Movie. Any of those sites' locations would also have all the information you need about how to watch us. You can watch us on Facebook, on YouTube, plenty of ways to find us. 10 in the morning, 6 in the evening, January 13, some amazing Star Trek shenanigans, to use your word. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's uh, worth um, noting um, what a great philanthropist Rod has become, how he's used uh, the proceeds of Star Trek to benefit so many causes and help so many people and worthwhile causes. And, uh, you know, um, it's a testament to Rod, what a good person he is and, uh, what he, what he has done for so many, uh, uh, things like this. Well, we wish you nothing but success with this. And of course, we're excited about supporting, uh, the purple, uh, the purple stride and pan cam later next year. Uh, which comes in April. Yeah, so you'll, you may you'll have to indulge us, us again. You'll see us all again with Mr. Frakes and uh, and Miss, Mr. Shimmerman and Ms. Swink and uh, Mr. Cotto. Mr. And we can uh, we can chinwag about that and have some fun. I, I, I think y'all should do 10 top celebrities mushed into Alien. I would be curious. What, what, just to close, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. What, what, what? Cling on. Jimmy Stewart. No, is a, no, Most? Jimmy Stewart. No. Jimmy Stewart is an organian. Organian. Oh, Absolutely boring. Boring. You're no. You're boring. <laughs> Charles <laughs> McGraw. Okay, I'm going to do Charles Jimmy McGraw Stewart as a Cardassian. 
Ooh, uh, yeah. Jimmy Stewart as a Q. Jimmy Stewart as Q. You yeah, got to no, marry that folksiness that. to something. No, uh, Jimmy Cagney as a Q. No way. See, there you go. Jimmy Cagney is a board. You see what I've left yeah, you with? Uh, <laughs> you created chaos. <laughs> a, rich, a, rich, a rich field of drama is yours. Oh. This is the last episode of the Trexperts. We, we're we're, we're, we're going to argue so vehemently that uh, none of us are going to be talking to each other. Thanks a lot, Sean. Sean. Chaos. Uh, anyway, th- <laughs> thanks for joining us. And thank you uh, out there in listener land for once again joining us uh, on this holiday countdown. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new top 10 list uh, as we continue the uh, holiday specials. Uh, you can, of course, uh, follow the conversation and share your thoughts at Inglorious Trek and Inglorious Trexperts on all your favorite social channels. And uh, on behalf of myself, Ashley Edward Miller, Robert Martin Burnett, Darren Docterman, and special guest John Billingsley. And if you haven't got enough of him, check him out on Trek Talks on January 13th. He's going to be there and he is raising money for the Hollywood Food Coalition, a great cause. So support him and his Trek friends as they raise money to help feed the foodless. And there'll be and, a lot uh, more of the other people and a lot less of me. So if you're sick to death of me, don't worry. The other me. people. The other you know, people. the other people. And the other, Dominic. The little people. Or right, as Dominic exactly. like to say, oh, you know, I want you to meet John Billingsley. He's on my show. And uh, you know, yeah. maybe Peter Billingsley will be there for Christmas festivities as well. Peter, all right, Barbara Billingsley, back from the dead, all the Billingsley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. And with that, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, and happy holidays and a happy new year.